peanut butter applesauce peanut butter applesauce turning it down just a little tiny bit what is going on this is the alaska diy podcast welcome to the first episode well the first real episode i guess over a year ago I sat down with Ryan Lampers to record my very first episode for a podcast that I didn't know what I would call or exactly what it would be about, except I knew it would have something to do with hunting, because that's what I love. This episode is not specifically about Alaska, but one of the reasons I was really drawn to sit down with Ryan is because he has the ability to go into the backcountry in states like Washington that are not known for trophy deer and elk. And he pulls out big, mature animals year after year, year after year, year after year, year after year. If you don't know what I'm talking about, check out his Instagram page at Stealthy Hunter with an extra H. So it's like, okay, ST Healthy Hunter at Stealthy Hunter. It's actually pretty, pretty clever because it's like a healthy but stealthy hunter. Some of the stuff that you're going to hear about in this podcast is definitely a little bit dated. So Ryan's going to tell the story of killing a big buck down in Nevada. That was two years ago, the 2016 season. This last year in 2017, he drew the tag again or drew another Nevada tag and killed just a stud, a masher, a slob, a cranker, beautiful big backs, heavy horns, a toad. What I'm trying to say is that Ryan shot an awesome buck last year in Nevada. So, I don't want to confuse anybody out there if you've heard that story, but I, I definitely would love to get him on again sometime and hear some of his hunting adventures in the last year or so. Here we are, Alaska DIY Podcast. Check it out. <laughs> this is Alaska DIY. Alaska DIY. <laughs> Ryan. What's going on, Abe? It's, it's kind of late. It is late. <laughs> like 10 o'clock we're just getting started uh, we plan on starting so much earlier than this but it's all right hey we're sitting in your office right here and i gotta say that i am pretty impressed i mean i don't know if impressed <laughs> is the right word but it's 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 well, a cool office there's there's a little bone in here well it's covering all the tables and even your desk and I know. the walls Maybe a bigger and, office i guess but uh yeah i don't mind sitting in here and just kind of kicking back and looking around it's it's one of my favorite things to do, really. <laughs> I can see why. Yeah. All right, man, let's jump right in. Um, well, first of all, I just got a f- question for you about mushroom hunting mm-hmm. versus shed hunting. Oh, man. What's better? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. What is it? Oh, dude. Oh, right out of the gate. Um, all right. I love, I love shed hunting. There's just something about it. But it is really similar to mushroom hunting. It's like it's like you, you once you find them, you can't help but run over to it and pick it, right? I don't know that I can answer which one's better, though. I mean, I love antlers. Uh, I guess if it's a if it's the right size antler, I'd probably go with the antler. But um, I love mushroom hunting. I love food. I love putting it in with the elk steak, the deer. My daughter, she's she is on board with mushroom hunting, and we got so much of it here in the Pacific Northwest. It's it's one of those things that you know we look forward to every spring, getting out there and and chasing down morels, and then of course uh, in the fall we're chasing down a whole lot of variety from chanterelles is probably number one, and 
oyster mushrooms and chicken of the woods and you know for elk you know we always pick those and we're elk hunting and oh there's just such a variety so i don't know i that's a tough question to to ask but uh i might actually lean towards mushrooms (laughs) now that i think about it i I, uh that's cool i've seen some of the sheds that you picked up yeah so that means something yeah yeah we've (laughs) got a few sitting here on the table that uh that we pick up here in washington and it, there's something special about finding uh, finding these big racks, and you just—it's a really weird feeling you get when you walk up onto a big shed. You just start picturing that big buck when he had bull sets, and you just—and this is right where he dropped it. Um, it's just a good feeling. Love it. But mushrooms are better. Mushrooms are a lot more delicious. <laughs> I can tell you that. Yeah, they they go better with elk burger. There's so many things. I mean, we've gotten into dehydrating um, a ton of the mushrooms, so it's kind of a year-round. You, you get to utilize them year-round where a lot of these sheds, I don't sell any sheds. So a lot of them, it, just by nature, you end up putting them in a box somewhere. And, um, you know, we've always said, you know, whoever has the most sheds in the end, you know, you're the winner, right? But sheds are awesome, but you can't eat them. So... I know that's that's probably sounding pretty bad to uh, to the hunting crowd, but I gotta say I'm, a, I'm I've become a foodie in my old age, and there's something about uh, you know mushrooms that just goes good with meat. Yeah, I have to agree with that. Yeah. All right, Idaho Archery Elk Hunt 2016. Yeah, that um, that looked like a really cool hunt. Just a little bit I saw on social media and some of the comments you made about it. It was a blast. Yeah. I'd, I'd say, you know, it's always hard for me to kind of figure out, okay, when when you look back at the, at the end of the season, you go back and you think, man, what was the, what was the best point or what was the best hunt that you had? And I've always had a hard time thinking about that because each one is unique. Each one has its own sets of challenges and, and, um, you know, beauty, you know, and just the, the different landscapes that you're in. And, that that elk hunt in Idaho though that was that was so different and it was just exciting I mean I I got into a lot of bulls it was a great area um man I I can't I was by myself up there I had nobody around had nobody um you know to try to stay away from or you know to come back to camp to and talk to so it was just me and I just enjoyed myself I got to see so many critters on that hunt and, uh, and Idaho's just got some of the best, best opportunities around for, uh, for kind of a do it yourself guy and, and public land guy. And, um, man, yeah, I found, I was real fortunate, uh, in that unit when I, when I, it was a, it was a draw. So I drew that tag and I had never been to this area. I, I tend to hunt com- opposite ends of where this was. And so I went there, I did not have time to scout it, which I wasn't real comfortable, um, but I had too many, uh, too many things going on to get over there and scout it. Now I talked to as many people as I could, but it, still, when you haven't gotten to lay your eyes on it and actually get boots on the ground and really put the time in, you're always going a little uneasy, right? So this hunt, I got over there and I kind of planned it out. And I do this with most is, is just the first day or two. I drive around, I'll drive around and just really get all the boundaries figured out and get a good layout of, of, of how the whole unit looks. So you, you're talking about has had season opened at this point? Uh, I got over there 
Yeah, it, it had already opened. I didn't get there on the opener. Um, I had a prior commitment, so I wasn't there on the opener. But I got over there, and you know, I wanted to see where the other guys were. I wanted to see what the terrain was on the east side, the north side, the, you know, all sides of this unit um, in the, in the middle of the unit, and and really pick apart the the private boundaries versus the public, and you know, where am I going to have the best crack at at sneaking into a piece that hasn't been looked at or hasn't been touched? And so it wasn't such a bad thing going in once the season had already opened. Um, you know, I'd have a pretty good idea where the where the you know horse trailers were and where the guys were at and focusing focusing their time. So. It really worked out to my benefit because um, other guys had, you know, been in the unit hunting for a few days. And so by the time I got there, I got to drive around and just get eyeballs on all of this new country um, and really kind of pinpointed, you know, it took me the first full day and a half to really figure out, okay, now I know this area. I've checked this area off. I don't want to be the, here. There's some, there's some folks here. There's some, there's some deer hunters here. I, I don't want to be bothered by that. So, you know, I, I narrowed it down. Um just bebopping around in my pickup and, and getting to these areas where, okay, I, now I get a sense for this is where the timber is. This is, this is where I can see on, you know, on my maps that this is going to be a spot where I'm going to find some bulls and I'm going to be able to get away. And I know that because there's nobody at these trailheads or these, these little access points. There's, there weren't a lot of trailheads, but there were access points, you know, to get in, in the center of these areas, like amongst private land where guys were going to have a tough time getting into unless they really, you know, really, really wanted it. So that was, uh, that was kind of my game plan going in. And, and, uh, I'll be honest, I got lucky in the first place that I picked out and I had picked out a few spots that I wanted to look at, but the first place that I looked at and I actually, you know, got out of the truck, had everything loaded and went in, you know, I was going to go in there for a week if it wasn't good, I was going to come out and get hit spot number two. So wait, this is after you've driven around for a couple of days. This is after. Okay. Yeah. This is once I figured it out. This is, uh, you know, I think it was middle of my second day over there where I really figured out, okay, <clears throat> this is where I want to go. Mm-hmm. And um, you, how are you navigating the public land versus private land boundaries? Okay. Yeah. I, uh, in so many ways, you know, whether it's, I've got, I use Onyx maps a lot. I've got it on my GPS. I've got it on my phone. And so certain areas I, I was trying to, I was trying to download certain areas while I was over there, which was kind of a pain, but I always had my GPS to go to and that had the chip in there. And so it showed me precisely where I was and it was real exact. And I, I guess I'm kind of old school. I, I'm real comfortable with the GPS, mm-hmm. um, versus downloading certain sections into my phone and I will get more comfortable with that. But right now I have spent so many years using the, the Onyx system with my GPS that I just, it's my go-to. So, um, so yeah. So while around. I was driving around, yeah. I was kind of looking at, you know, one hand on the wheel and one right. hand on the, on the GPS. And I'd say, all right, so here's some yellow, you know, here's obviously this is unhuntable. It's private white. And so, um, that's how I figured out the layout of the land really was with, the help of Onyx maps. And then I also had, you know, some mapping, um, you know, hard paper gazetters and stuff like that. And, um, use that as well. That kind of, you know, from afar without driving in there, I could, I could get a good gist of, all right, there's a lot of, you know, forest service here and there's a lot of public land here and you can get that with the gazetter as well. So that's kind of, that's how, kind of how I picked my spots is just driving around and, and figuring out, access points, little slivers in between private land and, 
and that would open up into bigger areas of public land that had some really good quality country in it. So that was, that was it. And this is a draw tag you said. Yes. How many years had you put in for it? Oh, this was my first year putting in for this draw. Uh, it's not, it wasn't one of the toughest draws. Um, now typically I'll hunt Idaho, but I'll just hunt it over the counter. Idaho is one of those states that you could go to every year and be completely happy and content hunting over the counter. Not, you do not need a draw in Idaho to go have a great time and get some nice, really nice bulls. But every year, you know, there's no points in Idaho. So every year you, you just kind of put in, you hope for the best. Um, and this was one of those things is like, holy smokes, just a bonus. I would have hunted it anyway and probably had a blast, uh, more in the North country. But this was one of those tags that I'd always wanted to kind of see a little bit further south into Idaho, where it's a little bit more open, a little bit more visual instead of just focusing on the calling part. So that's why I was putting in for this area. This is something different. And so what that when I got that tag, yeah, I was pretty excited just to see some new country, not just a, a real thick North Idaho breast country bulls, but some country where I'll actually be able to glass more and pick out bulls that way and do my spot and stock if, if need be, if they weren't calling. Cause I was in there and they, they definitely were not calling out of the gates. So, so when you're looking at that unit, did you, had you driven through the area before? Uh, I'd driven s- past it Okay, and I knew how open it was and that was about all I knew of it. Um, is that why I, you chose it? I had talked, no, you know, I had talked to people, um, and to be honest, my uncle had drawn this tag. He'd drawn it as a rifle tag probably, shoot, maybe eight, nine years ago. And so he'd always, I always remember, I just had a kind of something in my head stuck. And he, he loved the unit. It was late season. So it's completely different than when I was hunting it. Yet he loved it. He saw some really good bulls, but I know he was frustrated because most of the bulls were on private land. But this was late season. This was, you know, well into November. A lot of the bulls had been pushed out of them or dropped out of the mountains with the deep snow. So he had some frustration, but he also had some opportunities on the public land. So my thought was the public land is up high. I think early season, I'm going to have a better time up there. Um, I think I'm going to be able to get away from people. And I think more of the guys are going to be down in that private stuff. So that's kind of what got me on it. Just remembering a story um, from so long ago from my uncle talking about that unit. He didn't end up getting a bull on that tag, but just the the layout of it, um, how he talked about it, some of the bulls he saw, that's all it took. And it just seemed like you know a pretty logical place to go. And if I wanted to see something new, that that was kind of it. Okay. So like in the back of your mind, you've you'd had this unit and that memory yeah and this year you just decided i'll throw my name in the hat for that one throw my name into this new unit and hope to see some really new country and have a have a real good adventure and some new stuff and it's exciting you know i i've there's some areas where you know i'll hunt year after year after year but i gotta say the older i get um the more excited i am to see new country and as of late, the last few years, I've really been branching out and just trying to, whether it's in my home state here in Washington or it's in Idaho or Montana, I like just going and seeing other areas. I like to go see another challenge um, similar to Montana. I'll go hunt Northwest Corner, challenge myself there in a, in a low density unit versus maybe next year I just feel like seeing something new and I'll go east and uh, yeah, I think the older I get, I just like the, a new challenge, something new, some new type of terrain. And that's what this Idaho was for me is something new. 
because I had never hunted elk in that kind of country. You know, there was quakies and open sage and boulders and, you know, stuff that I've never experienced um, in all my years of hunting Washington and North Country, Idaho and and, um, and that. So cool. Okay. So then, sorry, I kind of cut you off, but now you're at the, you parked the truck, right? Yep. So you found your spot. You I drove around. A sliver. Yeah. You drove around for a day and a half. And when you say a sliver, you're looking for like a little bit of public yeah. access into an area that's kind of. Yeah, and kind of while I was driving around, um, I think it was that that evening of the first day, I saw some really nice bulls on some private land, and um, and that was fun. That was exciting. Just seeing those first bulls on a trip like that, just from the road. You know, that's something I'm not used to here in Washington. You know, I just don't see bulls from the road. But there, you know, obviously they were safe. They were they were um, on, sitting parked on private land, but that's where it starts to get fun. Like how can I get access to that country just behind this private land? And if there is access, how far am I going to have to walk to get to it? Because I knew most of the, most of the private stuff is around the roads and it's down low. But, uh, what I was, what I was looking for was that sliver off of a road mm. where I could park my truck, um, totally legal and be able to, you know, slip through, go cross country and get behind that private land and possibly have a chance at, you know, getting some untouched country where guys just aren't hunting. The unit I was in, I know, um, I, I had heard when I was putting in for it and talking to some people is you're, you're either going to have to be in really good shape or you're going to have to know somebody, hire an outfitter or get in there and find some private land. Well, I like that. I like the sound of that. You know, that's kind of a summary of what you look for, right? Okay. Well, definitely not going to hire a guide. Um, not going to be hunting. I'm not going to be over there knocking on doors. But if all I got to do is be in really good shape to get away from people and maybe get into some national forest, that sounds perfect. And that's that's what this hunt had as far as opportunity. And so it, it was kind of exactly that. I found that little sliver off of a off of a main road, public road. You know, these aren't paved roads or anything. You're still way back there, but found a sliver and used that to my advantage. Um, found a place to park there, and and yeah, skinny little sliver, you know. And but you can get deep back in there you know it's up and over some nasty steep rocky stuff but it, it gave me access to some really phenomenal area where if you did not have like a, a chip or a gps that was telling you exactly where you're at nobody would know that this was even public they would just assume it was private um, there's not big signs that say public land you know park here you have to figure that out on your own um so, yeah, and I, I, I just, that's one thing about that chip. It has definitely opened, you know, doors up that we never used to have, you know, back in the olden days when we were hunting these areas. We just didn't know. We didn't know. It just looks all private. So all those bulls were, were nice and safe back there um, in that national forest land that just never got looked at. Just to clarify for <clears throat> anyone listening, are you uh, sponsored by Onyx Maps by chance? Sponsored? No. Okay. <laughs> Just want to make that clear in case no. somebody's scratching no. their head. Going, hey, I'm wait not, a second. This sounds like a sales pitch. Maybe someday <laughs> I'll get sponsored, but no, I. Uh, it's there's probably I don't know. Are there other companies that do that? Because they probably are. I guess that have the chip. But man, I think when I first when I first started using the chip um, in my GPS, I was over in eastern Montana, and like I mentioned before. You get, you get to these areas and there's no signs, you know, there's, 
there's block management units that, you know, have a, a colored post that, or a, a box that you sign in on. And those are obvious, but there is so much country that you just have no idea. And I remember when the chip first came out, I'm not sure if it was on X or if it was somebody else that started it. I think they used to be named something else, but could be wrong. But that was just like such a secret, like such a top secret right there is having that chip and just being like, you know, I can, you can be driving down these long Eastern Montana roads and all of a sudden you're looking at your GPS and it's yellow, it's public land. And you would have no idea. You look over there and it, it all looks private. You know, there might be fences and, and you look at that and it's, it's a game changer. And now all of a sudden you see this massive amount of area and, and country that you can go and you can hunt. And, uh, that was a game changer for me. And I think a lot of people, so. How did you feel when you found this sliver in Idaho? I had high, high hopes. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I, now I had found a few of them, uh, that were going to access this general core of, na- of public, uh, national forest. But the first one I found, it was, it was going to be the best area to get into this timber that I wanted to get into. And, um, and it didn't disappoint. I got to say, I got in there on that and it's a few miles in and, and whatever. And just to kind of start it where it kind of opened up and yeah, I was How many miles? Some bulls. it was probably, probably about three miles before okay. you, you kind of break out and it opens up where you can really start glassing. And, it, and then you're at the point where everything you're looking at is public. Mm. You're not worried about private anymore. Uh, that's all behind you. So those are the kind of areas that you just dream about. What kind of elevation did you have to climb? Oh boy, it wasn't, it wasn't a ton of elevation. You know, it would be like 800 feet here and 900 feet down and then up and, you know, just nothing like we face in Washington or the North country of Idaho. It's a lot more rolling hills, but when I say rolling, you still end up when in these pretty steep rocky areas just it's where the bulls are but uh, definitely a lot more rolling than than what we're used to or accustomed to here in washington or, or certain areas we hunt in north idaho so cool so you got in there and, and started glassing yep got right? in there started glassing uh figured out a spot where i was just kind of kind of set up and and just kind of ease my way in you know i didn't want to go in too far and blow things out and it's one of those areas where it was so open, it was really a big advantage because um, you could see what, what you're walking into. And, and immediately I started seeing some bulls feeding and, um, and uh, heard a couple bugles, but nothing exciting. It was still pretty early. But just the fact that I was spotting bulls, glassing bulls from this first ridge that I got onto, you know, they're just feeding outside of these timber lines and little pockets of, of timber and it was just the, the perfect scenario. So I had high hopes. As soon as I got in there and I started seeing bulls, I wasn't seeing giant bulls, but I was seeing six-point bulls. I knew as the rut progressed and as I got deeper into this country, it was just going to get better and better. So from what I was seeing on the edge of this thing, just tickling the edges of this massive amount of public land, I was pretty excited as soon as I got there because... This is this was a dream being able to just spot bulls from a long distance and and have access to them. So, so that was the second day in the unit. Yeah, and you already found your way in. Yep, and uh, you're looking at bulls. How long did you plan on staying in there? About a week. About a week. Yeah, okay. about a week. And you know, you're always kind of like, oh man, should I stay in there longer? But then you're figuring out your food rations and figure, well, you know, I'm gonna get in there. Let's just make. Let's just 
go conservative. Let's stay a week. Let's bring enough food for a week. And if it's, if it gets to where I want to stay and I'll just come out, you know, and, and hike it out and, and get some more food and go back in. But, um, yeah, I just planned on a week and, uh, and that's, that was about perfect. Um, how, how it's supposed to work out, right? Plan for a week and, and get your bowl on that, that end day. And that's, that's how this one worked out. So yeah, it was, uh, man, it was, oh gosh, like I said, I, I just kind of got in there and started, started getting my feelers out and just kind of tickling the edges again. So I didn't, I didn't get in there and blow things out, just kept a distance. I knew as I was there, um, the rut would get stronger. I'd start hearing some more bugling. The bulls would break apart a little bit better. And I wasn't seeing many cows. I was just seeing random bulls, like a bull here, a bull there, you know, a couple bulls here, still grouped up in some, in some cases. But, um, yeah, as the days progressed, I started figuring it out. I started getting a little bit deeper. I'd start finding water sources. Uh, I started finding the scrapes. They were scraping like crazy early. And, um, and I immediately started actually calling in some bulls. Now they weren't, they weren't scream fest. They weren't like, you know, yelling matches. They weren't, it wasn't like I was going in picking fights. Um, most, most of those early bulls, they were coming into, uh, you know, a lot of scraping and some light cow calls, which I'm not a huge fan of. I know it works and it, it worked there. Uh, but typically I'll hunt later in the season, uh, later in September and, and get into these screaming matches and, and that's, that it doesn't get any more exciting than that. So this was a different kind of hunt in that respect as well as I was going in a little ahead of the rut and trying to get these bulls in, um, either stock them, you know, once I spot them, go in and, and put a stock on them or call them in with light cow calls or scraping. And for that hunt, scraping worked the best for me. I called in a lot of bulls, just scraping bulls in. And it was um, maybe a locator bugle getting in close and then scraping and, and having them come in completely quiet. I, I don't even know how many bulls came in completely quiet. 95% of them came in. And all I, all I knew is that I'd hear a stick break. And that was like my cue to be ready because one's coming. You're not hearing him. He's not talking. He's not screaming but you heard a stick break and it's coming. So what date did you go in? Like what, what day of the month? That was early. I'm really bad with dates. It was, uh, it was, oh geez. It was early in September, probably that first week in September, um, somewhere in there. And so it was a lot earlier than what I'm accustomed to hunting. I know here in Washington, you know, I think we start, well, it used to be the seventh, maybe somewhere in there to the 11th. And, and they've extended our season out into the into the 23rd or whatever with archery. And it is so much easier for me calling bulls in and having fun and, and getting out there when the bulls are talking and screaming and I can get, a, get in a fight with one versus that early season when, yeah, you're calling a lot of bulls and you're calling a ton of satellite bulls in. Um, it's just not as exciting for me just because of the fact that they're not screaming. And there's something about that picking those fights with those screaming bulls and trying to get them away from their cows and all that fun stuff that it's, it's just way more exciting. It's just a funner hunt. When you got in there and you said you started tickling the edges and you, you're saying you, you weren't trying to go in there and blow stuff out, right? Let yeah. stuff see you or wind you. Right. Um, so a couple questions there. One, when you got into that public land, how, like if you were to guess at a percentage, how much of it would be open versus forested? Mm, I would say 
overall, uh, probably 65, 70% open versus forested. And so on the outer edges of that uh, forest service, the public land, it was a lot more open. And, and the timber that was there was like quakies. And, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't like deep, dark forests, like where we were, where I ended up further along in the hunt. I ended up getting them, you know, more into deeper into that unit than, than where I started. Was it uh, like forested draws mainly with open yeah. ridges? Is that, or was forested, it yeah, there's, elevation? There was little triangle tapers of, of timber on the tops, um, but the bottoms were more of a thicker scrub um, you know, alders and everything else, and definitely more tangle hoof to kind of maneuver through those bottoms. I'd much prefer to hunt in those tops because it was like easy going, um, you know, dark timber, but, but just easy walking versus, versus down in those bottoms. So. And then when you were tickling the edges, um, is that, were you working ridge lines or were you in the bottoms glassing up? Well, like I, tickling the edges i was just kind of like as soon as i got to where i could really kind of visualize i could see everything i was glass and stuff and i could see deep into the unit um i just kind of started working across kind of paralleling the public land or the private land and um and i just i just knew that i didn't want to get my scent in there i wanted this to be as i wanted it to be as unaware of my presence as possible uh, because i knew there was nobody in here you know i saw no boot prints I knew I had a hidey hole. I could tell there was no vehicles in the area. I'd driven the road. I'd figured out, you know, there's just nobody here. It's all me. So I don't have to worry about other guys blowing up this hunt. So take your time, um, you know, go in, go in slowly. You got all the time in the world. I had set myself up for, for you know, two weeks, two weeks over there, and just going to be enough time to do it, to make it happen. And, um, and so I just, I was not rushed in any way, which I think is one of the biggest reasons I'm, I love, well, getting away from people. It's, I love being a kind of a solo guy. It's just, it's an adventure trying to get away from people because once you do, you, you're hitting animals that just have nothing bothering them. They're not used to seeing people. They're not, they're not getting called to every day. They're just not aware that that's even going on. And, you know, when I got in there, it was, it was just like that. They didn't know the season was going on. They hadn't heard a quad running around. They hadn't heard a truck slamming its doors and bugling. Um, they hadn't heard any of that. They were completely untouched and, and completely unaware that, that it was uh, open season. Um, that sliver of, of public that I got, it kind of, uh, I got in between the private and it went straight up and there was a, a ridge running north-south. And, um, I got up on top of that. And from that point is where I was looking into this unit. Well, so I went North just kind of paralleling the, the private that I had, you know, passed by on my way in. And so I could see the next unit in front of me, out in front of me to the east, to the West. And that was another North South facing Ridge. So, um, but the country, how it laid out, I could see up, I could see down, you know, I could see back even a little bit. Uh, I could see down into the bottoms really well and, and up on tops where there was some timber. So I just had a good visual and I started figuring out where the bulls were and where they were feeding. And, um, you know, most of the day it was pretty quiet. You know, I wasn't seeing much, obviously that's just how elk works, but in the evening, man, they just start seeing yellow patches here and there and in those mornings. So the, 
you know the the early the early those early season hunts is really important if you want to know what you're what you're going after early mornings late evenings being on your glass and just staying out to that very last drop of daylight for the most part so when you were the first couple of days in there um, were you hiking a lot or you kind of picking good vantage points and was, sitting and glassing? I was picking good vantage points. Um, and once I had seen the bulls for a couple of days, the first bulls that I was looking at, uh, I just I just kind of determined, okay, I'm getting I'm getting a good idea. There's some six points in here. They're nice. They're just not exactly what I want. So I just wanted to see what what it had to offer. And so then I started getting deeper. Uh, I kind of took that ridge a lot further north, started dipping down into the next basin, going beyond that. And eventually I ended up quite a few miles back into that country in more of a timbered environment. So it wasn't as much glassable country, but there was still sagebrush and there were still pockets that I could glass from a vantage. But it definitely got to the point where I was more comfortable getting in, looking for scrapes, looking for areas where I was seeing fresh sign. And, and that's where I do my light calling and scraping and that's where I had most of the action. You know, that's where, that's where all the action was. Cause I wasn't putting moves on those bulls that I was visually seeing. Just none of them appealed to me that I, I wanted to go for. Um, I just kind of had this thought in my head as far as what kind of quality I wanted on this animal and didn't have to be a giant monster. This isn't an area known for monsters. Um, maybe there's a couple running around on private land somewhere, but that was not what I was, I was there. I just wanted a good, mature six point bull. And, um, and so that's what I went for and, and that's what I was seeking out. And that's, as I got deeper into it, I started finding, you know, the right scrapes and the right sign and, um, started hearing some bugles and, you know, I could determine, okay, there's some herd bulls in here and this is probably the year I want to focus my time. What day was that when you started finding that? Uh, I think that was probably like day four, um, where I really started just saying, okay, yeah, this is, this is where I want to be. This is where I want to focus my time. Um, you know, like I said, I, I wish I would have counted like all of the bulls that, that ended up coming in quiet. It was a lot, you know, it was, it was double digits, you know, in the first few days that, they were just sneaking in and they'd come in and, you know, I, most of the bulls, I'd have my bow at the ready, but they just didn't appeal to me. There's a lot of raghorns or just, you know, six point bulls that, that might've been herd bulls, but they just weren't mature enough. So, um, yeah, I, I got, as I got deeper in there, I just started seeing some really cool, phenomenal country. I was seeing moose, I was seeing bears. I found this watering hole and it had a half a dozen bulls coming in um every night and they would come in and they would they would come down the hill in front of me yellow and they would come out black with mud and it was just awesome to watch and uh one of the mornings I was there I saw I saw two bull moose and and a cow and um same thing they were all going to this watering hole uh saw a really nice black bear in there he'd go from the choke cherries down into the watering hole and went right back up the same path he took right back into those choke cherries and um, and this country was loaded with choke cherries. There was just, it would have been tough to hunt a bear in that country just because they could have been anywhere. They're everywhere. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, you know, I wasn't really, I, I didn't really want to sit in a water hole. It's, I know it's effective. I know it would work. I could have sat on that thing and killed the six point, you know, if I wanted to, but just did not want to do that. It just doesn't excite me. It's not very fun in my mind. I'd rather get out 
and, and try to try to track a bull down and get him to come to me and, and not just sit on a water hole for hours. It's just boring. <laughs> so, okay. And we're going to need to stop and make some coffee here in a minute, probably. Oh yeah. <laughs> we're already out. My cup's getting empty. Yeah. Mine's cold and empty, which is okay. I'll drink it cold. I'm not, not complaining about that. All right. But I'm really curious about how this hunt is progressing because you started in open country, worked into more timbered country. Yeah. Started doing a lot of glassing from vantage points, but then you mentioned bulls coming in silently. So like just, can you explain a little bit maybe about what, what, how much you were glassing, what time of day you were calling or how that, were you calling to bulls that you saw glassing and put a move on or were you doing some cold calling as well? At this point where I really started getting into some, a lot of action was I was more into the timbered stuff. There was a lot of big dark, there was, there was timber. It wasn't dark timber, like real thick, thick stuff, but it was dark timber in that the bulls were comfortable in there. That's where they were going um, from the open back up into the timber and bedding down for the day. So, you know, I called most of the bulls in, um, not in the mornings, not in the evenings, but middle of the day. I'd find, I'd find these areas where they're just rubbing like crazy and, uh, saw a lot of sign. And I was getting them to call back. You know, I was definitely getting bulls to, to do some talking here and there, but they weren't, you kind of get, you get a pretty good idea of how fired up they are, you know, and none of these bulls were super fired up. I could get them to talk, but they weren't screaming at me. They weren't peaked out. They weren't that interested. So, um, what I'd start doing is, is, you know, hearing a bull, maybe just, it might just be a glunk or a, a, you know, a chuckle and, and I'd go in on him and maybe make a couple light cow calls and sometimes not, but I'd get in and start raking and I'd rake and then I'd kind of let off the raking a little bit and I'd get more violent with the raking and uh man i found on this hunt that worked phenomenally i can't like i said i can't tell you how many bulls i raked in and they weren't coming to my call and they were just coming to that and um and that was one of the funnest things of course when you're by yourself you know it, it's always kind of worrisome you got one stick in one hand you're beating the snot out of this brush and you know you got to be at the ready because they're coming in completely quiet but it was warm, it was dry, it was noisy. So you would hear them crack a stick and that's when you knew to get ready and, and you know, have your bow in your hand and maybe quit raking as much. But um, yeah, there was a couple of instances where, man, I, I did have one bull going. I found a ton of rubs in this one spot and they were some solid rubs. They were really just, and they were all fresh, you know, within days and they're just beating the crud out of this, this timber. And uh, I got above the timber line and it was pretty snarly. I was having a hard time getting through it. So I got above it and I started started getting a little bit more jacked up with my calls. I started throwing some actual bugles in there. And I got one big old bull to really start laying into me. And that was like the first one that was actually getting fired up. And then there was another bull that was, shoot, he was, he was several, or hundred, several hundred yards down the hill. Well, what ended up happening was that other bull came in and he came in hot like he passed up the the big old snarly one right in front of me and he came in hot and it was a pretty nice six and i was actually contemplating shooting this bull he came in at like 35 yards but he was he came in straight on and uh that other bull was still going nuts right below me and i i just i couldn't take the shot i just didn't want to do it I, i wanted to see what this other bull was before i committed to that other one and so he ended up turning around and walking right back the same way he came up. Well, not 
two minutes later, I look on that same line and I go back to scraping and, and screaming at this bull and I see this other bull and it's a five by six. Came that exact same line that that first six point came in and he got to within 15 yards of me and he was looking right through me. I I wasn't interested. I, I was kind of moving around. I was hoping he's going to go the other way and he did. But just in that one spot, you know, there's three decent bulls there. And I went back to to playing with that big one, and I just I just could not get that bull to come through that snarly stuff. It was super thick. He just what he was fired up, but he wasn't fired up to the point where he's just going to come kick my butt. So um, I started every day that I was in there. I started getting more opportunities and more chances at you know, or it's just a better feeling of uh, these bulls are getting a little more hot daily. So I kind of laid off the glass, and I, I was more into the timber country. And I was going looking for rubs and, and listening for bulls at this point. And, um, you know, eventually I got to a, a spot where had a really nice deep draw. It was pretty, pretty timbered. And there was this patch of timber up top. I remember I found a couple of sheds up there. And, uh, and there's a lot of good sign. There's a ton of rubs. And it just kind of like, it just kind of like worked its way down into this open, beautiful, like sagebrush draw. It was, I don't know, it was like a mile down, down Canyon, which I knew they'd probably feeding in, but it was a spot that I, I never had eyes on. <clears throat> well, that evening I heard a bull and uh, I heard a couple bulls. I heard a couple squealers and then I heard what sounded like to be a pretty, you know, mature bull. And so I got, um, just by the way the thermals were, were working that, that afternoon, I ended up dumping down and there was a directional coming across. So I, I ended up getting below that bull across from him, but down. What side, which <clears throat> side are you dropping in on? Are you on a side ridge? I'm, down I'm walking, I'm, I'm going down a side ridge, um, the opposite side of where the, so the bull would have been on one of those north-south facing ridge, uh, but he was on the, what sounded to me like, the east side of that ridge. So then obviously it goes down to the bottom, it comes up. And then the other side of that ridge is where I was. And I was side hilling down across. And and I got well down below and and uh, kind of got set up at that bottom. And I, I figured I had a pretty good spot where he might come through that evening just feeding down. He was gonna, gonna be going from some timbered stuff down into some more sagebrush, um, really good feed type country. And I got down there and no sooner did I get there and it took me a while to get down there. And, um, one of the smaller bulls, one of the little squealers came in and it was like a four point or something like that. And this thing just would not leave. And he just, he just stayed there. He had me pinned down. I just, I just, you know, not a bull I wanted, but, um, that other bull, he started talking a little bit more and, you know, once that four point left, another little spike or something, I think it was a maybe a one by two, just this goofy little thing. And he came down in there and same thing. He was just sitting there parked on the hill and he started feeding. And I was like stuck in a spot that I didn't want to be in. Were you in the open? I was, yeah, I was in the open, like just below some choke cherries. I had come through these thick choke cherries and, and that's, that's never fun. And, uh, and I had an idea of where I wanted to be. I wanted to be right in the bottom. And so, um, I got pinned down there for a little bit. And once that other bull fed away. Real I, quick. Hey, yeah. Why did you want to be right in the bottom? It seemed like that's where that bull was going to go cut across. And when he dumped down to the bottom of that draw, what I thought was he's going to go through those nasty alders and he's going to get up on that other side, which is where the real good feed was. 
And, um, and it, it just seemed in my mind, it just seemed like that's where, that's where he should be going. I don't know why exactly I had that feeling, but it, it just seemed right. Why do you, why was the feed good on the other side or how could you tell? It was just a really nice, thick sage, um, you know, bitter brush and, and everything looked perfect. And, um, I had noticed bulls prior to this feeding in that type of terrain, that kind of a, a, a sage. And so it just seemed like that's where, if I was that bull, I would go there. <laughs> so that's where I was heading. I just kind of wanted to, it was almost like a, uh, you know, like a spot where I could, I could, he's going to come by me. It wasn't even going to be a calling scenario necessarily. It's going to be like an ambush and I was going to be in that bottom. He's going to come down. He's going to come right down there. And I just had a feeling, I don't know what it was. I can't explain it, I guess. But, um, long story short, I ended up getting into that bottom Okay, and sorry. I started scraping. I got to stop you one more time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. Okay. So you're on the side hill. Yeah. You're pinned in the open. With yeah. a with a small bull just yeah. below you? No, he's right above me. Right above you. He's right above me, and I'm trying to go down further. And he's feeding right above you. He's feeding right above me. How far away? He's about a hundred yards. Okay. He's about a hundred yards, and he's right close right to the, the top of this knife, this little ridge, and he just needed to roll over it. And mm. eventually, he did, and I was able to move. And what so, was the wind doing right then? It was still coming down and across. Um, so it, it was a perfect wind. I everything everything fit the bill to get a good ambush on this bull. And he, I could just tell by how he was calling because he continued to call. He, he started at the top and he's getting a little further down. He's three quarters. Now he's halfway and he's in some pretty good broken timber. I never did get a visual on him, um, until he got further down closer to me, but I could just tell his direction, how he was going by his calls. And so once that small bull fed up and over that ridge, I motored and I got down to that bottom and I threw a few calls out, a few bugles, and I started scraping. And when I started scraping, that bull just went nuts. And he came down and he was coming in pretty fast. And um, and then we had this point where he kind of hung up. He was probably maybe maybe about 100 yards up there, maybe 150 yards up there. And he uh, he hit a point where he was just scraping. I was scraping. He would scrape. I would scrape. And I've... I've raked in a lot of bulls in my ears. I've never had a session go on like this. It, this went on for a long time. And it would just be one of those deals where I would scrape, 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 scrape. And it was almost like he was listening. Usually they go right in with you. And then he starts scraping. But this went back and forth and back and forth. And, you know, I'd scrape a little bit and I'd scream and he'd do the same thing. He'd just do the same thing. And then I'd, I just, I'd kind of get to a point where I knew when he was going to scream. And so I'd cut him off and it, and it got to be one of those fight scenarios that just, it was like, this is what I, this is what I live for right here. This is what I want, th how this to happen, getting that fight and, and just get him so fired up and pissed off that he comes in. So you're in the bottom. Yep. Is it, uh, is it, is there scrub brush in the bottom? Alders, Aspen? It's pretty, it, there it was, there was enough that, I felt comfortable that he wasn't going to see me, um, but it was also pretty sparse in places. I had a lot of good shooting lanes, so I was kind of torn. I know going down there, I was kind of torn. Like, do I just should I just not say a word, or should I call and try to get this thing to come in quicker? The problem I had was it was getting dark. Um, daylight was fading fast, and so I made the the conscious choice to 
let's try to get this happen tonight. Um, let's, let's call, let's try to get this thing to come in. And so, you know, it worked out amazingly well. I couldn't believe how it worked out that I did get down there. And yeah, that bull, he did hang up, but it was so much fun going back and forth and back and forth. But then it got to a point where there's like, you know, there's half an hour of daylight left. I got to make something happen. So I hadn't seen this bull yet. Was um, he in the draw, just up the draw from you, or he was, was he like on the side? He was up the draw for me. It would have been now he's facing, he's kind of on the eastern slope of that okay. draw, that north-facing ridge, mm-hmm. and I'm right in the bottom. And uh, But there's enough timber that I just can't see him. There's enough green up there and brush that I just can't see him, and he's not that far away. So what I ended up doing was I'd scrape, and then he'd start scraping, and so I'd move. And I figured I'm just going to see, get in here tight enough to where I can actually get a visual on this bull and see if he's, you know, if he's worth taking. And I knew he was, I could tell by his scream, he's a good mature bull. Um, so that's exactly what I did is, is I would scrape, get him to scrape, get him focused on that tree to tearing it up. And for whatever reason, this bull would, he would start scraping and he would get so into it. He, it seemed like he'd be scraping it for 10 minutes. And so you know, overdoing that enough times, I figured out, all right, this is going to be my opportunity. So I'd get up and I'd motor in about 40 yards. And then if he'd stop, I'd stop. And then I'd start scraping a little bit. Well, as I got closer, it fired him up even more and he started screaming a lot more. And it hit a certain point where, um, yeah, I just, I started, I would scrape a little bit. He'd start scraping and I'd move in really tight on him. Well, he didn't, it got to the point where I was too close. How, how many times had you done that? Mo- scraped and then moved in? Well, I probably did it like three times, maybe four times where I'd scrape and then I'd move once he'd start scraping. And then how close did you get? Now he's within, you know, like 60 yards and I still can't quite see him, but I can see the brush moving where he's scraping. So I know I'm close and, uh, and then he had enough. I got to the point where I was 60 yards. You know, with one hand, I got my bow in my hand and the other, I've got this... That's the other thing. I'd broken quite a few sticks in this battle. And so I was down to like this tiny little stick. It wasn't ideal, but it's all I had. And all I had were these, when I ended up going up on the hill to where he was on, all I was finding was this wispy stuff and there was nothing to really lay into, but it's the same stuff he was scraping. So it worked. But, um, yeah, so, so I got in there and all of a sudden he, he'd had enough, um, and he decided to turn and I saw all of a sudden the brush stopped moving. He turned and he went up and over the ridge and he came across and he, he ended up coming down the ridge. There's like a little knife ridge coming off that main ridge and he came up and he, now he comes up and over and he's standing there 40 yards. I'm fully drawn because I saw his rack coming over that ridge first. I get fully drawn and he is completely broadside. But there's one little quakey right on that hill. It's one of those steep hills. And it's just one little thing. And he just happened to stop right where it was in my way, of course. And so I'm standing there and I'm holding and I'm holding and I'm holding and I'm holding. And gosh, I mean, I it seems like 20 minutes, you know, that you're holding. It was probably like a minute or a minute and a half or whatever. It just seemed like forever. And that bull stood there and stood there and stood there. And I could see it's a good bull. This is a bull I want. He's got really nice tails and he's nice and heavy and dark and just a perfect bull. Well, so as he as he kind of lost interest because there was no more raking going on as I'm standing there holding, he turned around and he went back over that little knife ridge and he dropped down 
lower because as soon as he went over it, I made a little cow call. And then that bull jumps right down and he comes up right next to me because I'm kind of on that same knife ridge. And he, now he's like, you know, 10 yards from me. But he's, it's his, the same thing. I had let down. His rack comes over first and he's just like, his head is right there. And I had no shot. He came up and over and now he's, there's a bunch of brush in between us and all I can see is his rack. So 10 yards away. 10 yards away. No shot. Standing there, no shot. And he's moved kind of laterally down, he's moved, down the ridge? He's moved to my left okay. and down. And now he's come up where he's completely parallel to me on the hill. And what's same, the wind doing? Same elevation. Okay. Wind is still going down, but now he's getting but, a little closer yeah. to busting me. Right. Um, this whole time, the wind was perfect, which is something that's not usual. It just doesn't happen that often, but it, it was just ideal. And so... Um, you know, now there's very little daylight left and it was such an epic, like back and forth and back and forth. That bull ended up turning, walking away. I just couldn't do anything. He was that tight. Uh, didn't have a shot, but he ended up, you know, cutting back down and just going down Canyon. Well, shoot. So I backed out, but I was all smiles all the way back to camp that night. You know, I took a long time to get back to where my camp was. Wait a second. I thought you were going to kill this bull. Like I honestly... (laughs) No, I didn't kill that bull. <laughs> oh, okay. No, not back to camp. Not that night. No, not that night. Um, back to camp. So the next morning, I got down there and I got below, and I immediately picked him out. You know, he he immediately started bugling. I got I had dumped down way below him, and again, I had the thermals just perfect. And uh, this time, same thing. We started going back and forth, and it was one of those deals where. I went in at him, you know, bugling like crazy and cause he was answering me every time and he was super fired up. I don't know if it was from our scenario the night before, but, um, but yeah, this time he came blasting in and it, it happened. It was just like immediate. As soon as I got in his zone, I got within about a hundred yards and I cut him off and he just came running. He got within 10 yards, gave me a perfect broadside shot and, and I just drilled him and, and that was that same bowl. So same I got bowl. him the next morning. <laughs> you just had to get him worked up. Worked oh, up. Oh man, I'm the... so glad it worked out that way because yeah. that night before was one of the funnest little back and forths. You know, that was just that was just an epic little battle we had. And like I said, I've never had a a, a back and forth rake session as I had with that bull right there. So yeah, but yeah, it was a great bull. You know, it was just a phenomenal bull, and I was completely happy with. This is the biggest bull I saw uh, in all my time there and, and the biggest one that I'd called in. So, um, and it was fun. It was just, it was just an epic, epic bull to get in that country. How, how many days did you say that was in there? Uh, I think, gosh, I, I think that was, that was, I think day seven that ended okay. up killing that bull. So almost out of food or you were out of food. Yep. yep. Yeah. I was teetering on the edge and yep, about ready teetering to... on the edge. So that day, would you have gone out the day that you killed him? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I would have went out and came back in. Yeah. Yeah. I would have went back out, got my food. Yeah. Um, yeah. It wasn't that far in. It was, yeah. it was probably only about six miles to where my camp was. So definitely would have been worthwhile. Um, I knew I was in the spot. I was not moving from this spot. I just had too many encounters and too much action. And like I said, the best part about it was there's nobody there. Mm. Uh, I, I wasn't having to deal with it, which is something I was worried about going over. I thought, uh, you know, not knowing the countries there are going to be quads everywhere and deer hunters, you know, there's a deer season going on and all this, but I didn't have to worry about any of that. So I was so comfortable with that specific spot. It just worked out perfectly. 
So cool. So you shot him. Yep. Sorry, I got excited. Yep. Did you say ten yards? Ten yards. Broadside. Broadside. Drilled him. He only he didn't go very far. Yeah. He only went 150 yards, maybe. But he went straight down that nasty, nasty stuff. I mean, it, it was like a train going through there after I drilled him and and um but yeah, he he bled like a stuck pig and, and just didn't go very far. So was that towards the truck in any way or did you have to bring him back up and out no no that was down in the hole hmm. abe it never happens on top never does it never does <laughs> man it's always in a hole right no matter what it's going to be in a hole you stick them on the top they're going to run to the bottom but no this was i ended up sticking them in the bottom but he ran down he ran to the south and so you know it wasn't a lot of elevation loss but it was further distance from from the pickup so yeah yeah so, yeah, but um, I, I'm not going to lie to you, though. I, I, got that, I got that bull, broke him down, got all the meat hung and, and, uh, and taken care of. And, and I got out of there, and I knew a guy over there. And he had told me, he said, listen, if you get a bull down back there, don't hesitate to call me. I've got some guys that have got horses and so, you know, it was hot. Um, I had stepped over a few rattlesnakes. I was I was perfectly comfortable doing it myself. But that first load, you know, I just I threw about sixty pounds on my back, and I got it up, and, and I was gonna, and I got it to where I was gonna head out. And I got up to that ridge, and I made a phone call. <laughs> and I called my buddy, and I told him what I had done. And he was super super happy about it and congratulating me. And he said, "Well, hey." give this guy a call. And I was like, man, I don't know. I'm not real comfortable doing that, but are you sure? And he's like, he will love to come back there and do it. And, and long story short, some of those Idaho boys, they're some of the best salt of the earth people on the planet, you know? And sure enough, I, I, I talked to this guy and, and he, he would not take no for an answer. He was just mm-hmm. like, I, I'm coming in. I don't care. It's going to be dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Doesn't matter. We're, we're going to get the horses some work. We're going to come in. And, and sure enough, man, he came in and, and that next day we, we got the whole thing out and I did not have to suffer through another pack out solo. So that was a huge help. Um, and yeah, I, I really, uh, made out like a bandit on that one. I was not, I was not expecting it, but this guy was dead set on helping me. So, so, not a not a um, service for a fee. Not an outfitter no, or a horsebacker. He, he wouldn't take anything. Wouldn't take, just knew a guy, get, nah, friend yeah, of a friend. Yep, yeah, friend of a friend. Yeah. And um, like I said, you know, this was a the guy that I had uh, that I'd met. I'd met through Train to Hunt. Mm. Um, just a really super guy. I'd met him at nationals, and I told him I was coming over there. And he's one of the guys I used for some information, and he was a great help. He gave me, you know, some roads. Hey, check this out. Maybe look here. I've seen bulls here. You know, I've hunted bears here in the past. So he had some great information. And, um, and yeah, I, I, I took it to heart and used it. And, and uh, yeah, I, I called him up. And like I said, he was super congratulatory. And he, he's like, man, you know, this guy wants to help you. And he did, which is something you don't see every day. That's awesome. Here. That's awesome. So, yeah. All right. How are you doing? Great. Great. You I, use, I might need some coffee. I do. I think we should stop I don't for even a know what time it is, but I think it's pretty late. It's late. It's already creeping up on 11. Oh, yeah. Um, My coffee's kind of cold. Yeah. Let's let's stop for a minute, grab 
we'll make more coffee. We'll get back on while it's steeping and then we can absolutely keep cranking. Sounds good. Sounds good. All right, great. Hmm. Okay, we got coffee. So you had a great hunt in Nevada this year. And um I've seen pictures of this hunt and and actually heard the story on a couple other podcasts. Yeah. But you killed a big typical buck yep. uh in the velvet. Yep. In Nevada high country. I did. First year in Nevada. Um yeah, went in, you know, expecting very little and and came away from it just completely impressed with that country and it's one of those hunts that now I just I I'm just itching to get back. You know, I want to get back there and figure it out even more. So uh, definitely a, a hunt that I'm looking forward to the next time I'm able to draw or just get down there and, and hunt it. So yeah, had, had a great, great time down there. Learned a lot about, again, different country, just night and day country from Washington or Idaho or even Montana versus that country down there, that high desert, uh, different tactics. Um, yeah, everything was different about it. When you say high desert, you're in mountains, correct? Yeah, it's mountains. It's wilderness area. Okay. Uh, parked up there, 10,000 plus, 10,000 to 11,000 feet, um, which is just, and you're, you're in sagebrush and you're up in that kind of elevation, you know, so it's, it's pretty unique. All right. We got to talk about the coffee for a second. Cause I just, How is that coffee? I, do, I just took a sip and was like, Oh man, I can taste a difference. <laughs> Does it taste sweet. Yeah. So, um, all right. So, um, today before dinner, I got to try it. Uh, Ryan and I and Paley yep. ran out into kind of took a hike out into some of the property that you own. Correct. Yep. yep. And you had tapped some maple trees, which here in Western Washington are big leaf maple. Yeah. Yeah. It's, kind of different um <laughs> yeah I, i've been tapping these trees and and doing two things you can either cook it down and cook this water down and make it into maple syrup or you can just drink the darn stuff and and have yourself a really tasty really light sweetened cup of water so yeah i figured i'd run you up there and just show you what we're doing and so we got a you know a little three and a half gallon bucket or whatever and brought it back and I'll admit this is the first for me. I haven't made coffee with it yet. I've, I've drank a ton of it, but um, yeah, that's not bad, right? So we had some. Okay, good. is this is a totally new thing for me? We had some at dinner. Yeah, and just drinking it like water. And actually, when we were, you know, when you were pulling the buckets out, yeah, at the tree, you get, you know, you give Paley a sip out yeah. of the bucket, and then and I got to she taste loves it. it. Yeah, it's really cool. And uh, yeah, she was drinking out of that big bucket, right? To, yeah, trying to tip just it back and not it spill. Back. It was all um, over her face and her clothes, but hey. right. <laughs> <laughs> but I took a sip, and I was really surprised. I imagined it would be quite a bit sweeter than it was. Yeah, it's really it's not, faint. It's not sweet. No. I mean, it's barely sweet. It, it's if like if you were just to take a typical glass of water, it's pretty bland, right? Um, but then you taste this, it's just got a tinge of sweetness. You mm -hmm. definitely know it's, it's there. You taste Something. a little bit of maple sweetener. Um, but yeah, you know, like when, when we're making maple syrup, you really got to You get 10 gallons of this stuff and you, and you basically boil all that excess water down to a nice dark maple syrup, but you might only get three quarters of a, a quart of maple syrup out of that 10 gallons mm -hmm. of, of water. So um, yeah, maple syrup's nice. The kids love it, but like you saw, I just, I bottled it all up and I just, you know, be, be up there again in a couple of days and I'll just get a few more buckets down and we just drink it. And it's just awesome. It's, it's one of those, 
one of those things where it's super healthy for you. You get a bunch of phytonutrients, you get calcium, potassium, all this really good stuff out of it. These minerals that are getting sucked up, you know, out of the ground through these trees and, and you get this flow of up and down and, and, um, yeah, you just keep filling up buckets and it's such an easy thing to do to tap these maple trees that were just, they're abundant everywhere, right? You saw how many of them were up on the property here. It's just, you know, Pacific Northwest, they're everywhere, but yeah, I don't think a whole lot of folks do it. Yeah, I grew up in Western Oregon, down yeah. by Roseburg, and uh, we, I grew up with big leaf maple trees everywhere. Yeah. Everywhere we hunted, they were on the edges, you know, dug fir forests and big leaf maples and, and yeah. on the edges and stuff, and in our in yards at the school, I never never heard of anyone tapping them, but I'm impressed. No, I think I, I always thought it was like a East Coast thing. For mm-hmm. whatever reason, right. I thought there's a, some certain tree, and I, maybe there is. I don't know all the ins and outs of it, but... Um, but no, these ones are, are perfectly, perfectly fine to go tap. And, um, it's such an easy thing. It's a tube running into a bucket that I've drilled out, uh, three eighths inch drill bit into the tree, a little bit angled. And then I just kind of shove a little, uh, little, you can use to use a plastic tube or whatever. And, and it just pours out and shoot overnight. You know, you, you might get three gallons, three and a half gallons in mm. one bucket. Wow. So, depending on the tree. Yeah, so we made coffee with it. We got up from recording to take a break and make fresh coffee, <laughs> walking out, and I just made an offhand comment like, hey, you should try maple water sometime. Yeah, I had my water bottle here full of maple water, and I thought, or you you mentioned, yeah, let's try to make coffee with that. So I thought that's a good idea. And it's, it's sweeten it up a little bit. It's good. It is. I can, it is. Because we just had the same coffee it's a, it's when we new, started. It's a new thing. It's yeah. a new thing. Yeah. I might have to I'm going with it. talk to Starbucks about that or something. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> be a new fad. Oh, man. Okay. Yeah, no, that's awesome. One more drink. Okay. Nevada. Okay, so you, you call it high desert. Yeah. But you're in mountains. You're in wilderness area. And yep. in but you're talking about the desert habitat? It is, yeah. I mean it's it's pretty dry down there. I mean it's there's little pockets of water in these upper basins and everything, but it's it's wide open it's sagebrush it's quaky patches you know um aspen stands and this and that and um real unique kind of country uh really conducive to glassing uh you got to go down there with some good glass and and really put your time in to, to locate some really good bucks there's a lot of animals down there it's it's different than here up here you were used to searching out one like you may see a few and then find that good one down there. You're looking over a lot of bucks, a lot of like average bucks, you know, um, one fifties and one sixties. And if you want to put a number on it, but you're getting to look over a lot of bucks and for an archery hunter, that's a good thing. Um, going down there, you know, I was not, I wasn't, I didn't have my, I think anybody that asked me, I just, I just want to get a mature buck. Mm -hmm. I just want to get a good mature, cool looking buck. And that was it. I didn't have a number. Uh, but as I got down there and I started seeing what was moving around and, and all these nice velvet bucks were running around, I quickly realized uh, opportunity to 160 buck is pretty prevalent. Um, had a lot of opportunities I could have went for one. And so I was seeking out that one big one. And, and it just so happened that I found the biggest one or actually it wasn't the biggest one, but a really nice one. The first day I got there, I glassed him up which is not something that typically happens. Everything went down from there really for as far as glassing up other bucks. But I ended up seeing a lot of bucks and uh, 
and saw one other really good buck. I mean, this is, this is a dream buck and that's kind of why I hope to draw this tag again is to go down there and really focus my time on that one specific buck. If he, if he's still around, but it's cougar country. There's a lot of cats down there. So you just never know. So was there any timber to speak of or is the trees mostly the quakies? It's like you mostly said? quakies, you know, yeah. and they get in those quakies and good night, you know, it's, you're oh, not man. getting, you're not, just still hunting in there for bucks. That is not something that's going to be a real high productive type hunt. You could do it, maybe get lucky, but once they get in those quakies, if they're not on the edge, you know, they, you get, they get lost in there and you just, mm. they're just gone. So finding the right terrain is key in my mind. Um, finding these rims where they're not maybe going all the way into the timber, but they're more up in the bowls or off the top rims or, you know, below some boulders or in areas where you're going to actually have a fighting chance of getting in on one and, and getting an arrow in one. And that's kind of the, the country I was looking for. You know, we passed up a ton of country that was, there's a lot of bucks, there's a lot of deer, there's a lot of sign and everything was perfect, but it was open country where I think your, your best chance of success was going to be sitting on a water hole. And again, that's just not something that's fun for me. Uh, it would have been probably pretty darn, uh, successful, but it's just not something I'd rather go instead of just sitting on a water hole, twiddling my thumbs, I'd rather at least be sitting on a knob somewhere, glass in some big country. Uh, maybe it's the same, uh, you know, you're still sitting in one spot, but just being able to look and look at this new country, big country, had oppor- opportunities to see a lot of different deer. Um, that was, that was the thing I wanted to do. And so I just, I, uh, I worked my tail off to find the right areas and, um, lo and behold, I pulled a good one out of there. So, so looking for that area, mm-hmm. I'm just out of curiosity, you just talked in depth about being in Idaho mm-hmm. and how you found that area. Yeah. Did you, was it a similar strategy in Nevada or is it different? Cause this is wilderness area and it's wide open. Yeah. You know, it was thing about it is I say wilderness it, for whatever reason, I'm a Northwest guy. So when I say wilderness, I usually think of like pretty rugged, steep, rocky, alpine, you know, really hard to get into. <clears throat> Nevada's wildernesses, are, I wouldn't say are that. I mean, there's there's definitely some that are, but some of them aren't. You know, I, I there's areas where you see like old uh, quad trails where they used to be able to ride quads in there and and get into these wilderness areas, which, you know, our wilderness areas, we'd have no tire tracks whatsoever here. Right. Um, not even a sign of one, but, right. uh, but yeah, it, I'd say what I looked for when, when I went down there was just, again, areas that I could get away from people and areas that were going to be conducive to holding an old mature buck versus there's certain areas that are easy to find bucks but those are going to be the areas that other folks concentrate and put their time in. And they're, they've probably plucked the big ones from the herd is, is how I think. So just what's an example of an area like that? If you're looking at a map or you're yeah. just learning a you know new country. Okay. Well, like prior to going in there, I, you know, you hear Google earth a lot from guys and it's, it's cliche, but it, it absolutely helps going into a new area, a new state, an area that you just haven't laid eyes on. Um, so I'd spent a lot of time researching Google Earth and uh, just picking apart maps and talking to people again, real similar to the guys that I found uh, to give me some information in Idaho. I was down on a train to hunt event. 
I keep throwing that out there. I was down there on an event and I talked to some guys and they gave me some great clues. Um, I just happened to draw that unit and these people were real open with their information. And basically what I got out of these guys was, okay, well, here's a, I, I'd ask them about a trailhead and they said, yeah, is it, that'll take you in there. Uh, you'll probably see, you know, half a dozen, 10 cars there, which was a great tip. Okay. So I'm going to avoid that one. Um, that just tells me it gets hunted a lot. And so they could, they, these guys could tell me these little bits and pieces of, okay, so there's an outfitter in this area, which could be good or bad, right? Outfitters tend to hunt pretty good areas, but I wanted to stay away from there because I just wanted to find some spots that, that didn't have people. Um, so yeah, I do just, just by the fact that I was talking to people, getting an idea which trailheads were used a lot, which ones were going to be a little tougher to get to. And man, there's some trailheads in Nevada that aren't trailheads at all. I mean, there it, it's the start of a trail. Maybe it was there like 50 years ago and you have a hard time finding the trail, let alone getting your truck to where the supposed trailhead is. Um, shoot, I tried getting my big old Dodge in there, my, you know, three quarter ton and you'd need a quad to get up these things. And I overheated my truck, just, you know, fighting this monster hill, trying to get to a trailhead. Ended up having to just pull it over, um, let it cool off, and I just started hiking and hiked an extra two and a half miles to get to what looked like a trailhead on a map, but ended up just being a semi-goat trail. And But it got me into some great, great country. But again, that was an area that there was not going to be any cars there. There's not going to be uh, trail, you know, uh, horse trailers and guides and this and that. And so it, I was surprised. I had no idea that I'd be able to get away from the people like I did in Nevada because I had heard, yeah, there's going to be there's quite a few tags given out. Um, you're going to, you know, you're going to deal with some folks, but boy, it wasn't the case. Not at all. I don't know if I was just lucky or if maybe it's just that little bit of extra homework I did talking to those, um, you know, acquaintances down there, letting me know this trail is, you know, is, is kind of overloaded sometimes and this one isn't. But um, used every little piece of advice, and um, I love research, so I think I think that helps. I think uh, I think that's directed me to some places that that benefited me this year for sure. So the country was different, uh, but when you're hunting in Washington, Washington here in your home state, and you've been hunting here for years, right? A lot of years, yeah. Is it? Do you find a similar situation when you're looking at hunting into wilderness areas and you're approaching trailheads? I mean, is it kind of a was that familiar going to Nevada and did it feel familiar? Like, okay, this is what I do at home. This yeah. Is- it's the same program. Okay. Really it is. It's, it's completely night and day terrain. Okay. Um, but it is the same program. It always has the same feel. It's, it's get there, recognize there's nobody at the trailhead, which is always the case here. And, and it was the case there. And you're not going to have to worry about people. Mm. You know, that is a world of difference. Uh, for us guys that I like to be patient, you know, I like to like to see a buck and not go right in on him. So the only way that's going to happen is that, is that knowing that you're not going to have somebody else come in and blow up your hunt. Um, now it could have easily happened down there, but I just happened to find an area that there was nobody at any trailheads and, um, and it just worked out and it, and it worked out well, but yeah, it's always the same plan. Find that area where not a lot of folks are getting into that may put you into an area where you got a lot lower density deer. Um, you may not get the numbers, but I would rather hunt with low numbers of deer 
than hunt with a lot of deer and a lot of people. Mm. It's, it's, um, I think your success goes way up. Uh, you don't need all those opportunities to, to really, uh, put an arrow in a good buck if you're not fighting other folks. So you got up to the, you almost got to a trailer trailhead. You got two and a half miles from a trailhead. Yeah. So, and then you got, how, how far back in there did you end up getting before you found that buck? Um, I think from that, so two and a half miles from my truck that I pulled over to the trailhead. And from there, I think it was about six miles on that. I got up to the top, um, kind of a plateau. And, um, and then from there I just motored and I went until I find an, an area that I was fairly close to water. Um, I wasn't super close, but it wasn't too much of a struggle to be able to go get water. And it put me within an area that, you know, it, it put me on that rim where I was able to locate some bucks that would be stockable. They weren't going to be out in the wide open, sagebrush, easy to see for guys if anybody else was there. It was a rim. It was tough getting down into these steeps. It was thick quakies on all sides, but it had some openings. Um, so I was just putting my faith in being able to pick a buck out of that and, uh, and you know, off the main ridge where guys tend not to look. And I think the older bucks just tend to go to those areas. You know, they, they may not be like this buck was all by himself. Uh, and yet I was seeing groups of deer in easier to see areas that there's, you know, 10 bucks, six bucks, 12 bucks, 15 bucks, but they weren't, the biggest bucks they weren't the oldest maturest bucks um nice bucks but not 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 those big old crusty suckers that that dip down and you know they don't need this giant open uh area for feed they just got a small core area a little bit of quakey short quakies where where they can feed on and that's all it takes and some cover and um that's where i focus my time it is a little more frustrating because you could go one side and go look at all these bucks and then you go the other way and maybe not see a buck all day or see one good one. Um, but like I said, I saw, I saw a number of decent bucks, but two real quality bucks. And the one other one that I saw, he was in a similar scenario. It was, it was an area that he was impossible. He was just impossible to stock in the quakies that he was in. And, um, you know, just not conducive for an archery stock. But he was off the main main path, and I doubt that buck has ever been seen. I mean, in my mind, he's probably never been seen before. It's just not a spot that I think most people would probably look at. Small spot um, off of the main ridge and, and just hidey hole. So, Did you see anybody else up there when you were hunting that ridge? The only guy I saw was the guy I went down with. Uh, his name was uh, Dan. He, he came down with me, and we had put this plan together. Um put this area together ahead of time and he got in there i'd had some prior commitments so he got in there ahead of me by i think three days and so he was in there for a couple days we we kind of went back to camp and um talked about the day for those first couple nights but then he had to go so most of the time i was there by myself he ducked out of there after i'd been there a couple days and and um and the rest of it was just me so uh, saw that guy and, um, and the kid that he brought up to do some video and that was it. So yeah, I was pretty sure. Yeah, that was it on the, in that spot. That was, that was awesome. Just phenomenal. 
So really hoping I can draw it again. <laughs> that was a beautiful buck. Um, yeah. Velvet buck, nice big backs, deep forks, just a gorgeous typical mule deer. Yeah. Yeah. Was he, how wide was he? How wide did he he was 30. He was 30. Yep, he yeah, was that's 30 awesome. On the button. Um, yeah, just everything you want in a buck, early archery season. Uh, just that that Nevada thing is, has got me so curious because it opened up my window for, you know, I think we were talking to my wife tonight and I don't know that she's too happy about this, but, uh, you know, that just, that put me into August, you know, whereas usually we're starting in September around here. That's that a game changer. It is. It just <laughs> opened up some more time. Oh. Like, oh man, now I don't even think of September as being the opener anymore. It's like August is the opener. So, um, yeah, one more hunt to, to look forward to and I'm sure hoping to draw it. But, um, I think now that I've seen it and I think I've got a pretty good game plan, hopefully it probably, I'll probably go down there and get skunked, but, um, no matter what, it's, it's great country. You learn a lot. Um, it's definitely a, it is a massive challenge. Um, but feel fortunate to find that buck that I did. So, but I love challenges. So that was, that was definitely a spot for any bow hunter. I, I I don't think there's, there's a better place to go than Nevada, that kind of country. Like I said, you don't have to be chasing monster bucks, but you know, a crack at a 150, 160 class buck, those are phenomenal bucks and easily doable down there. There's just, there's a lot more game. So I've heard you say before that mule deer hunting, um, is your favorite or high country mule deer. Is that yeah. not true? So how did you get, how did you get started hunting mule deer in the high country? Cause, cause I grew up, you know, on the West side hunting blacktail yeah. and even guys out East uh, on the East side of the mountains, Oregon, Washington, Yeah, most of them aren't going up high. That's kind of a newer, newer thing that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but you started a long time ago, right? Yeah, I did. Uh, it's funny because, you know, I grew up on the west side of Washington, you know, surrounded by blacktails. And um, I think my earliest hunts were with my dad and, and he'd go around hunting black because he hunt up with a shotgun, actually. Uh, but I, I started I de- started doing some hiking over in the east side. How e- old were you? East of the mountains. Oh, man, this is when I really got the bug I, when I got my license when I was 16. Mm-hmm. This is when I really got the bug. I'd get over there. You know, me and my cousin would load up and and head east and just start doing these cool hikes, mostly just to get back into the high country and fish. Uh, That was kind of my draw. We'd get to these, we'd pick these little lakes on a map, and uh, we'd just go back there to catch cutthroats and stay for, you know, a few days to a week and just live on catching cutthroats and and eating what we caught. And, um, you know, I did not have the bug yet. But going back there and some of those, some of those wilderness areas, you know, you're doing this in the summertime and where are the bucks in the summertime, they're up there where those high lakes are. They're in those open cuts and open basins. And yeah, I, I went back in there and, uh, shoot, I know I can remember the trip where we, where we went back in and we saw these, we saw these really nice velvet bucks just hanging out in a meadow. And it was, uh, that really sparked my interest and, um, and that really got me going as far as just becoming a mule deer nut. And like, like I've mentioned to you before, I, I, I'm afraid of hunting blacktail. I'll probably really enjoy it if I started, but I do not have the same enthusiasm about even attempting to go blacktail hunting versus just going out and, and watching mule deer. I could go out and look at blacktail around here if I wanted to. I could, I could see some up on the property, but 
it's just not the same lure. It's just not as attractive as going and, and trying to find a high mountain buck up in the backcountry. Not even close. So as an aside, can we talk about your blacktail shed? Oh, yeah. Okay. So, because <laughs> this, uh, yeah. Okay, so I grew up hunting blacktails. Yeah. And I never killed a big blacktail, but I was a kid, and, you know, my dad was a meat hunter, and we how I learned to hunt was you grab a gun, you walk through the woods, sometimes you sit on a stump and yeah. you, yep. you you shoot them when they jump up. Right. Yep. yep. Um, but it was a great, it was great. We had a lot of awesome experiences together and in the mountains, in the Cascades right. in Oregon. Uh, but I know black tails pretty well from growing up and looking at them a lot. And we wa- I walked into your office here for the first time yep. tonight and you literally have piles of antlers all over. <laughs> Every horizontal surface in your office, including the floor, is covered in antlers. Yeah, it's really and, ridiculous. <laughs> and that doesn't count what's hanging on the walls. The walls are full, too. Yeah. Um, and right on top of a big stack of of deer antlers. Yeah, it's a mess of deer antlers there. Yeah, is a big... Um, mule deer shed. Yeah. And I walked up and sure. uh, my mule eyes went to it. My, <laughs> I, it was like, it's on top. Right. So, yeah. and, and it was, it's old and weathered, it's, but it fits right in with all those mule deer. Well, hold on because <laughs> that's what it is. When I walked in, that was a mule yeah. deer shed. Yeah. And I, but you got to understand this thing is all right. Uh, the bases, I don't have big hands, but I can just touch my fingers around the bases. Yeah. And there's a bunch of gobbledygook, gnarly stuff just sprouting from all over those bases. and buttons and everything you can imagine around the bases of that thing. Yeah. And I'm looking at it right now and it's tall (laughs) and it's not real wide, but it's, it looks like a mule deer and it is heavy, like moose heavy. Yep. I I mean, I don't know how to, I can't even try to exaggerate, uh, you know, make it sound bigger than it is. It's truly impressive. And I walked up and i picked it up and i was just like where did you, you know i don't know I don't if i said where did you find this but this is i don't this think is an an awesome can get shed. any heavier so yeah it, it is yeah and that's a true blacktail that is a true blacktail no bench leg about it not even close um but that's a true blacktail shed right there and yeah like you said it is gnarled up it's got giant brows on it um just as heavy as you can possibly get it's not super, you know it's 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 just i don't know i don't know how to describe it, it i don't it, either you can't really you, <laughs> like yeah okay it, so i just feel dumb right now because like i want to say this is extremely impressive and i don't even know what words to use yeah like you, you i could hold that up and take it anywhere and people would think it's a who would not think that's a mule somebody deer? would think that is one of the thickest fattest heaviest mule deer sheds you've ever seen you've ever seen it carries but mass a, but it's a blacktail shed it carries mass <laughs> like a man's wrist almost out to yeah. the points. I mean, okay, so that's an exact. Yeah, it's just it's like insane. I just imagine when I when I found that thing, I just imagine the buck that would pack that thing around. It's just like it's oh man, it's it gets your imagination stirring when you just hold that antler and yeah, it's crazy. It, it until you like see it and hold it though, it, it is even, hard to explain because yeah. I could tell somebody, oh, this is a big old shed. Yeah, but no, it's, it doesn't describe it. It's that's special. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I think I'll remember that for the rest of my life. Just because yeah. there's that little part inside of me that it. What's is, ridiculous is you know I got some pretty heavy bucks. Oh, you do like mule deer bucks in that pile and over here, but they're not even close. I mean, there's if you had to compare it to anything, this is going to sound ridiculous. But the mass is on par to a an elk. The elk antlers on the floor yeah i mean yeah, if you exactly compare right. mass yeah i mean it oh yeah that's yeah, about the mass of it it's some yeah. of those elk antlers down there 
and the frame is not a back black tail frame. It's not <laughs> it's not compact like a black tail frame. No. Okay, we're going on and on right, about yeah, a shed, yeah. but um, yeah, no. Inside of me, you know, lives this black tail hunter. At least as a kid, you know, you yeah. kind of always hold on to those feelings, and yeah, that is by far the most massive and impressive. Yeah, the most impressive black tail horn I've ever seen. Me. Yeah, oh my I, gosh, I love it. Yep, absolutely love it. All right. But still, yeah, I mean, maybe I'd be different if I'd have seen that thing on the hoof, you know, but <laughs> gosh, I did. I, I love mule deer. There's just something about it. You know, they're, they're elusive. They're on the top of the hill. They just bring you to the most amazing places. Whereas I don't get that from blacktail. Um, blacktail, you're in the thick, you're in the rain, you're in some scrubby devil's club sticker bushes. Uh, they're nocturnal, a lot of them. Um, I could see getting into it again. But I love the scenery. I love the country. I love the feel of being up there at, you know, in this state, 6,500 to 7,500 feet. Uh, other states, it's higher. But you're on top of the world, and it's just, um, it's just a different feel for me. I just, I think the area that you, you have to go to to, you know, try to find these muleys is, and that's it. That's what that's that's kind of my definition of where I want to be when I'm hunting. I kind of wonder what people think when they hear like, "Oh, we're hunting at six thousand feet or seven thousand feet," yeah. because I've seen it and I know you've seen it. And off trail, and you get into this nasty stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was in Colorado for the first time um, hunting this year at like ten five to twelve five. Right, and yeah, the elevation is impressive, but there was nothing there that was challenging like our. Cascade like, Range like here Washington at 6,000 feet, 7,000 feet. Yeah, you feel like it's weird because, yeah, you're 6,500 feet or seven, but you feel like you're at 12 because you're so far up there. I mean, we're, you know, right now we're at sea level, um, and it's it's a different world up there. You know, you're you're up in the, the scrubby, thick avalanche shoots, you know, um, short growing season with all the snow. And, um, yeah, yeah, it it is a different feel. I've been in places, you know, a lot higher, like I said, Nevada, Nevada, you're up there at 10, 11,000 feet, but it feels you're like you're on the Valley floor. Mm. You know, it feels like you're at, at, you know, in the desert of, you know, Washington on the East side at at 1200 feet, but you're up a lot higher. So, yeah. How often have you gotten cliffed out at 6,000, 7,000 feet? Um, do you, does it happen to you very often where you go? Not a ton. I, um, but yeah, new country. Oh yeah. It happens oh, for sure. Uh, more, not as much cliffed out, but too snarly to get through or a little too steep to get down or a little too steep to get back. If you go up yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, it, it happens on occasion, but I would say it just gets too thick to get through mm. more than anything else. Oh, it, it, you know, it's just gnarly, you know, it's, it's scrubby. It's hard to describe, you know, us Northwest guys, we know it, what it's like here in the Cascades, but, um, you know, that's why most people stay on the trails and, and, um, we try not to, <laughs> cause once you do get off of it and you, you fight through that stuff and you get to the right spot, again, it goes back to, you just don't have to worry about boot prints. You don't have to worry about these bucks, you know, being messed with and, and you can take your time and be patient and and really work a buck the right way. So I got to do more map work. I keep getting cliffed out. Oh yeah. (laughs) I do a lot. (laughs) And I think it's cause I'm always just like, Oh, I wonder what's over there. Yeah. Check it out. And then I find myself with a pack on like 
toe, toenails and fingernails on a oh, ledge, yeah. you know, going like, I'm not going back. I can't go back. <laughs> I just, I can just do inch you, across the shelf and I'll be fine. Here's a question to you. Do you wear like those micro spikes at all? Have you found those to be useful? I have not. No. I need, well, okay. I have heard of guys wearing either that or crampons on mm-hmm. like um, Southeast Alaska on steep coastal slopes that are always wet and slimy and slippery oh, yeah. and stuff like that. That's why we use them here. Really? Um, you know how, I mean, we, we get a lot of moisture here, even even in the, in the Cascades. You know, we get a lot of wet days and wet mornings and, and this and that. And uh, maybe it's not snow. Sometimes it's snow where they come in real handy. But also, if you're in the berry field or berry bushes or just a steep grassy slope, the yellow grass sometimes mm. is super slippery. Yeah. You slip these micro spikes on and, and they're a game changer. They keep you from sliding down to the bottom and they get you up stuff that you wouldn't normally go up and, and vice versa going down. We, we found them years ago uh, and we started using them for bear hunts because some of the bear hunts around here, it is so snotty up there when it's wet in these berry fields and you're just, you're stepping on the top of the berry bush and it just slips, you know, your foot slips down Whereas you slip these micro spikes on and they are a complete game changer. You can go into all kinds of new places that you just couldn't get to, or you wouldn't have been able to, or it would have been a lot more dangerous, you know, without them. So that's just one little thing that I've found here in the Northwest that are just there. You just don't not take them. You have to have them. Man, I'm going to have to check those out. Yeah, they're phenomenal. And I've yet to bend one. Really? Which is crazy. I mean, I've packed deer out, you know, coming down rocks and, this and that, you know, you, you don't want to take them on and off too much. And so I don't know how many times I've gotten to the bottom of something really steep and I'm just expecting to have like a broken chain or a smashed, you know, point at some point. I never have. They're just super tough. They're like magic. Yeah, I'm going to have to, you're going to have to show those to me. When did you start hunting? Like you started, you were doing a lot of fishing when you were young. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Used to be a fish, fish nut. And I've heard you talk about being a fishing guide in Alaska mm-hmm. uh, for several years. Spent correct? a lot of years up there. Yeah. I, I grew up fishing. My whole family um, has been in fishing one way or the other. Uh, be it, you know, my dad who's, who started the business, um, you know, my uncle just, we've all been into fish and they grew up down on Whidbey Island which, you know, puts you smack dab in the middle of some phenomenal, you know, everything, every kind of fishing, bottom fishing, salmon fishing. Um, you know, growing up here, uh, grew up in Snohomish, so we had access to some of the best, you know, steelhead rivers and, well, maybe not some of the best, but we had a lot of water to fish and, and we learned them really well. So, yeah, you know, we, we fished a ton, which kind of um, steered me into the direction of, it put me in with the right people to allow me to go to Alaska. And so I uh, kind of made a name for myself around here, um, being able to hang with these older guys on the river and catch fish. And so it, it put me in Alaska, um, guiding up there and got to spend a couple of years going over to Russia as well and fishing those, uh, fishing with a steelhead project, catching these untouched rivers that had never seen fishermen before. We got to go over there and, and catch these wild steelhead, like the, the truly last wild steelhead on the on the planet no effects or hatchery whatsoever and um we got to learn those waters and fly around in helicopters and and see new rivers and name holes and just like put put these camps down in these places uh you know in these wild 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 places 
and yeah, the rainbow fishing and the, the kunja, there's, there's a type of char and just um, Arctic char as well and all these salmon. And um, yeah, so fishing was a big part of my life back in the day. Used to love, one of my favorite things to do, and it still is, is to go climb into these high mountain lakes and catch tiny trout, you know, six inch trout. I don't care. It just puts you in these really cool areas. Um, and, you know, it's mostly just catch and release or whatever, but here in Washington, we've got a ton of high lakes. They may not have a name to them, but they have really good cutthroat fishing or brook trout fishing. And even a couple of them that have some grayling. Uh, but yeah, that's one of my favorite things is just going up and, and hiking into these potholes and, and catching trout. And I don't do it as much as I, I used to. Used to be my thing. Now it seems like if I get a day, I'm something going to revolve around training or getting myself ready for hunting season. So. I've definitely taken a 180 from fishing and, and focused my time and energy into hunting more. And when did you start hunting? Oh boy. Uh, I mean, I started at a pretty young age. I think, uh, boy, I, st- I started quail hunting, you know, with my dad early on. First trip was over to Eastern Washington, just chasing quail with the Britneys and I uh, did some pheasant hunting, uh, had an old 410 shotgun bolt action and, uh, yeah, that, gosh, how old was I? Uh, I was probably 12, I think, about 12 years old. And and that, you know, that just kind of, it was a lot of bird hunting. So I've, I've definitely changed a lot from where I started. Used to be a lot of chucker and huns and pheasant. And that's what I did in my younger crazy days when I could climb those hills. Like like they were nothing. And, and uh, I think that's it's one of the toughest challenges is uh, we got some really good chucker hunting in the state. And it just brings you to some steep shaley nasty country and it it's definitely a test of will <laughs> so you started bird hunting from an early age yeah going with your hunting. dad with family yeah. members yep yep we used to just uh run the dogs and and head east and and spend the weekends over there and and chasing huns and chuckers and pheasant and quail and all that and um yeah learning to you know, I, I think in my early days, we also did the reserves. You know, we did a lot of the pheasant reserve where they release birds and mm-hmm. go out, but they're nice and close. It was just, it was just one of the things that we could do and, and get you out there hunting and, and moving and shaking and getting you some exercise. Um, but I think I did, boy, I did that for a long time. I think my first deer, I was, oh, I think I was 14, I believe, when I got my first deer. And I was, uh, it was a pretty good, I mean, it was, it was not a real nice buck, but it was a four point buck. Um, but it was just, uh, it was a mule deer. Um, but it wasn't by today's standards, a real monster, but to me back then it was, it was phenomenal. But again, I did, I didn't really get the bug until the later years. It took a while for me to really get the, the, the mule deer bug. So I heard the story of your first buck. Oh yeah. On your podcast, right? Yep. So what's the name of that one? Hunt Harvest Health. Hunt Harvest Health. Um, and that was a cool story. Yeah. Kind of a crazy... You were 14? Cra- 14, I believe I was. Really? It's a crazy intro to yeah, to, uh, yeah deer hunting. Almost so, almost just well, completely getting turned around. I got turned around and went the wrong way for a long ways. Um, in the blizzard, basically. In a blizzard. Yeah. Fog and blizzard. Washington weather. And... Uh, Somehow, some way, I ended up getting my way back and ran across a guy and who had been drop camped in there. And uh, it's another one of those things. It's so hard to explain 
the odds of me running across this guy back there, the chances of that happening are one in a billion. And I, something, something was aligned because I, I ran into these guys and they told me where I was and I was like, holy smokes, I'm way away from where, I, where I'm supposed to be. And, uh, yeah, I made it out of there alive, luckily. But uh, that was my first experience, my first buck, and it just worked out. But And you were up in the mountains. Yep. So yep. F- first son at 14 and you... You're not hunting down home deer. You just go up to the mountains for mule deer. Yeah. Yeah. Me and my dad and uh, my cousin were up there and it was a spot that my dad had hunted for years. Um, You know, long, had a long history of hunting this area and it was way back. You know, it's, I think it was about 7,200 feet from that's, that's kind of where, where we were. And um, yeah, put us right in the heart of really prime mule deer country. And uh, yeah, so started at a really young age hunting that high stuff. But was that before you had that experience where you were um, fishing the high lake and saw the bucks in their summer range? That was at, that where I saw those in the summer range was after this. Okay, uh, I really didn't get the bug until I saw I saw those nice big velvet bucks in the summer. Um, you know, at that point when I was fourteen, it was a great deer, but I can't say that I was like. I think at that point, blacktail might have been okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But when I, when I got my license and we got over there and we were back in there in the summer months and just the coolest country and these alpine meadows and seeing bucks and velvet, uh, that was a, that was the game changer. I think that just, maybe it was just the the day that we were in there and the, the weather, it was perfect. The two really nice mature bucks and velvet, it was just perfect scenario. And somehow that sparked my interest in, in getting up there and, and chasing those critters. And when did you first chase them? Like, when did you first hunt those high mountain bucks? Um, I've always hunted them. I think at that point, from that point on, I've always hunted them. I wasn't always successful. Those early years, there was years I wouldn't get a buck, obviously. Um, but those were the years of rifle hunting, and uh, some years were good, some years were bad. Um, but we tried, and we always worked our tail off. And that's something I learned from my dad, you know, it, it, he had that same mentality, just work harder than the next guy, you know, get further back. And it wasn't just with deer, it was with birds, it was with fishing, it was with everything, just work harder, put more time in, um, have more staying power than the, re- than the rest of the guys, bad weather, whatever. Um, so I learned from him just by trying to keep up with him, you know, on all these hunts, bird hunting. Bird hunting was a challenge just trying to run after him, you know, with hip boots on and trying to stay up and, and keep up with him while he's chasing pheasant. It, it, that all kind of, uh, I don't know, it must've did something to kind of motivate me to want to get, take that into the big game, get back farther. Um, you know, just work harder than the next guy. Was he the kind of dad that, that would leave you behind? If you, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like oh, if yeah, you're hunting he'd, together, he'd let you know, if you were going too slow. Yeah. Oh yeah. 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 He'd let you know. No, you gotta, you gotta go faster. Or we gotta beat these guys or, you know, it's competitive. He's not pampering you out there. No, yeah. no, not at all. But, no, no. It, yeah. I mean, just growing up steelhead fishing on the rivers, you know, with him, just because it's cold and snowy and your fingers are numb, you are not going back to the car because of that. Um, you know, it was, uh, yeah. Growing up to where he made it tough. He made fishing tough just because he would stay longer. He would stay dark to dark you know and and fish all day if that's what it took to catch your catch your steelhead 
So, um, I don't know, I guess that must have had something to do with, I think, I think, I think what's worked for me is, is that right there is just stay power. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, um, it really helps to be able to have a mindset that you can just duke it out, suffer through whatever you're getting, um, dealt and, um, and keep after it. That's tough. Um, because as a father, I've been taking my kids mm-hmm. hunting and fishing for years now. Yeah. My oldest is 13 this year, and then second boy is 11, and I got a slew of little ones behind them. I got three more, you know, so. Yeah. Uh, but the two oldest boys, they're hunting and have been, and I I was cognizant of the fact that I wanted to get my oldest boy out there when he was of age, and he could tromp around with me, but I, right. you know, I was, I was aware of the fact that I didn't want to burn him out, Yep. and, and that was something in my mind when I took him hunting and I was trying to be honest with myself about his capabilities and what he could handle. And, and I still burned him out a little bit early on. Right. And to be fair, he, he was younger than it sounds like you might've been possibly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I knew he was capable of it. He just mentally wasn't ready. Right. It was all psychological. Right. And it took a few years and I really had to back off quite a bit, mm-hmm. almost to the point where, I didn't, you know, there were, there were several times where I just didn't take him. Yeah. Just let him be at home and he was fine with that. And I was fine with that, but I didn't want to lose, I didn't want to lose that relationship. I didn't want to lose the opportunity to share the outdoors with him as an important part of our life. Cause for me growing up, that was a, that was the most important part of my life was just sharing that time with my father hunting and fishing outside. Um, so to hear you say that your dad was like that to me when I was, when my son started showing interest again, uh, it was always in the, it was always a consideration for me. To, yeah. To make it intimidating and, and him not to like it, not I, to enjoy it. Right. I don't want to do that again. No, but no, I want to get I, him out there. I completely yeah. understand. It's I, tough. When you have kids and you think about, gosh, I get to see so much doing the things I love to do, the hunting, the fishing. How can I get that fire into my kids without screwing it up? I know I thought about that. You know, I, I always think about that. Like, what's it going to take? What do I have to do? Um, and I, I think about it all the time. I'm like, do I, do I do what my dad did, which was push it? Like when you're out there, it's no holds barred. You're, you're trying, you're keeping up. He's not, he's not, you know, slowing down so that uh, the other guys get in front or whatever. Uh, he did it. And for some reason it worked for me. I got that fire, but boy, I'm not, I don't think that maybe is the best way for everybody. I'm not going to be like that with my daughter. If she, if she wants to go, I've also seen it work the other way where it's like, um, don't take them until they really want it. Like, uh, my daughter has this, I don't take her if she's like not comfortable doing it. I'm not going to push her into it. I'm not going to say, Oh, we're going out there. It's snowing. I don't care. It's too cold. Yeah. Well, throw some gloves on. Cause I worry about that as well. I worry about like pushing her too hard where she ends up hating it. Um, but, and I think for her it's worked because I haven't taken her hunting yet. She's eight. So she's obviously really young, but she has the strong desire. She asked me all the time, when can I do it? When can I do it? When can I do it? So I think there's something to be said for that as well. Um, and I remember times where my dad used to go East of the mountains and he would come back with these birds, these chucker before he took me and maybe it, maybe I was eight. I don't know. I have a hard time thinking back that far, but I remember thinking, man, I want to do that. Why can't I go? And, um, 
I think that's where my daughter is right now. So maybe she'll get that burning desire to really want to go out and do it, which she seems to have. I think right now, you know, she tells me all the time, when do I get to go hunt that bear? You know, when are we going to go hunt that bear, dad? And, you know, I said a couple of years and, and we'll get that safety card and, and we'll, we'll start talking about it. And cause you know, right now she shoots her bow, she can shoot the rifle and, and she's, she's pretty good with it, but she wants to go hunting. And I love seeing that, but I'm not going to take her. And I think maybe there's something to be said for that in her personality that she's going to want it so bad. It's going to be ingrained in her to love it. And she's going to have that fire like I did. So, yeah. Just I don't do know. the best we can. I know, man. I, right? it, it's a struggle. I, I think because I've worried about, I think some parents, you know, just like with sports, they might push them into it and they're not real comfortable with it. You push them too far and they're, they're going to hate it. And I definitely don't want that with my daughters. I want them to enjoy it, to love it, to really want to do it themselves. So, yeah. They will. I've seen your daughter. <laughs> I've met her. She's keen. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard, when do I get to go hunt that bear, Dad? Because that's going to be her first hunt. That's I've cool. told her that. She wants it. I don't know what it is. I, maybe it's just me talking about hunting fall bears enough, but that's going to be her barrier to entry. She wants to get that that bear. And I think for kids, that's a great hunt. It's not crazy challenging. Uh, we got places not too far up up the road here where we can go, we can hike in and, and just kind of park it on some berry fields and, and glass. And it's super mellow and you see a lot of action. You see a lot of bears and, um, you know, the weather's typically good in August. And so I think it's a really good hunt for a younger, a younger guy or gal. And I think, I think that's going to really work for her because I don't know, for whatever reason, she really wants to get that bear. <laughs> well, she told me at dinner tonight, she told me all about the rabbit hunting story. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, was it Christmas? It was. Yeah, yeah we had, yeah, we, we shot a rabbit. She, it's funny because I shot, I saw a rabbit and uh, we pointed it out, you know, I was, I was like, oh, cool, there's a bunny back out there. And she's like, dad, we should go shoot that rabbit and have that for dinner. And I'm like, and I look at my wife and she's over there just like shaking her head. And, you know, I think it bothers her that Paley's so open to it. And I'm like, that's a good idea. We could have rabbit, rabbit for dinner for Christmas. And so sure enough, yeah, we, we, uh, we go out there and we go through the whole thing. She wants to be like covered head to toe in camo. So we get all my big baggy clothes on her and we, we pile her up with camo and she's just so excited to go out there. So we we get the, you know, we get it loaded up and, um, we go out there and we kind of put the stock on this bunny. It disappears for a while. She's got the binoculars and I got the little range finder. And <clears throat> so we go and we duck out, we got this little pool in the backyard and, and this thing was over in the raspberries in the back fence. And, and so we, we're sneaking and we're kind of peering up and, you know, I'm telling her, okay, we got to be really quiet right now. And now you just look for movement, any movement don't say anything, be really quiet. So this is the whole scenario was playing out. It just worked out awesome because she saw the ears. It was popped up and it was, it was in the back, back by the fence there. And, and so I said, all right, okay, I'm going to take him. And so she was looking through binoculars and ended up shooting it. And, uh, yeah, we went up and it did not freak her out in the slightest. She grabbed that thing and she wanted me to skin it out so she could keep the skin off of it. So yeah, she's, she's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> when I asked her about it at dinner and she was telling me the story and she said something like, and we shot it. And I said, well, did you get to shoot it? You know? 
And the look that came over her face yeah. was like this look of like slight confusion, but like utter disappointment. Like, yeah. you know, like, no, my dad shot it. But we, then we made it rabbit. So we cleaned it and we made rabbit stew for dinner. You know, yeah. she got really excited. But I could tell like there was this conf- conflicted feeling like my dad, we were successful, but my dad shot it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. 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 She, yeah. She obviously wanted to shoot that rabbit. She's pretty awesome. Yeah. She, she, she will shortly. We'll get her. We'll get her something when she's 10. She gets that license. She's going to jump on that. You know, it's, it's a nice thing here is you can, you know, as soon as you're ready, you can go get that hunter safety card and she's going to be ready for sure with all the shooting she does. And she's in really good shape. You've seen her. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Who is Dallas blood? Oh. And by the way, before you answer that question, yeah. that has got to be one of the most fantastic names I have ever heard. Isn't it? Dallas blood. Just for anybody. Dallas Blood. Yeah, I, I never, when I, at first I knew him as Dallas, and then I realized his last name was Blood, and he just became all the more cooler to me. So, oh boy, this is a story. Um, So, remember I told you I used to guide? I used to guide a bunch of the Seahawks, uh, the Seattle Seahawks. I'd take them out to these lakes. I used to lease up these lakes and stock them with big triploid rainbows, and uh, we'd have a bunch of the Seahawks come out. And back in the day, it was like, our quarterback, who was it? It was, it was back in the day when Kitna was around, and John Freeze was the Seahawks quarterback. And so I take him out, and Max Strong, Labounty, all these guys, and and John Freeze. I, I took him over to a, a lake in the East Side, uh, Blackstone Lake, we called it in Ellensburg. And he started talking to me, and he'd done some hunting, and he knew I hunted. In fact, while they were out fishing, I was shooting my bow and do a bunch of hay bales out while they were fishing these lakes. Because they were experienced, so I didn't need to hold their hand. They just go out and catch a bunch of fish, and so I just open up the gate. Well, he started telling me about this guy that he knew in Idaho, and John Freeze was like one of the most famous quarterbacks Idaho's ever had. He set like every record, right? So he started telling me about this his old baseball coach in Idaho. And he said, "Man, you would totally get along with this guy. In fact, he's probably sharpening broadheads right now at this second." I was like, well, yeah, that guy sounds awesome. And I said, uh, man, you should invite him out. You know, I'd love to just take him out here on the lake and, and pick his brain a little bit. I was starting to get an interest in archery elk. This is when it it, it started kind of, you know, I just, I just, I wanted to get away from muzzleloader hunting and start in on the archery. I shoot my bow a lot. And this guy, it sounded like he fit the bill for knowledge. I mean, he knew a lot of stuff. He, he lives in North Idaho, He'd had years of experience from what I'd heard. And so sure enough, he came out to the lake and, and uh, took him out, had him, showed him a great time. We got to talk, and he invited me over to, to Idaho, and he said, get your tag and, and come on over, and you can stay with me, and I'll, you know, I'll take you out there. And he's a pretty hardcore guy. I think you know, I hopped in his pickup, and we started going out hunting, and he's pretty much laying it out there. He's like, I want you on my heels at all times. If I look back and you're three steps back, the hunt's over, we're going back, you know, this kind of stuff. And so I stayed with him. The first, the first time I went over there, I stayed with him for, I think it was two and a half weeks. He let me stay at his house. I picked his brain. He showed me videos. He taught me how to call. He taught me the, the benefit of bugling in bulls and picking fights and, um, you know, all these little scenarios he took me on the mountain and, and we had 
these setups and everything and showed me how, how the cadence works with elk and all the stages they do to size each other up and all this thing. And we watched videos and, um, as far as a learning curve for me, meat and Dallas blood, I mean, that, that shaved ton of years off, uh, just learning the behavior of killing big bulls, learning how to get in on big bulls, learning how to call them. And he's a super patient guy, salt of the earth, worked in a mill his whole life. Uh, his wife was a mail carrier, the mail lady. And so, so Dallas Blood, he basically took me into all these really cool places in Idaho, taught me how to call. He'd say, we hear a bugle. You know, we'd pitch a bugle off and locate a bull. He'd say, all right, go after it. I'm going to sit back and let's see how you do. And then I'd go in and I'd fail inevitably. And he'd, and I'd get back to where he was and he'd tell me what I did wrong. He'd say, well, you pushed him. What are you, you're, you're like chasing that bull. You're going in screaming the whole time. What do you think he's getting? It's going to happen. And he'd just be real blunt with me and real honest and, and tell me, you know, you're never going to kill a bull doing that. And so, uh, yeah, talk about a mentor. And this guy, you know, that I was, I was in my twenties and this guy was in his sixties and in phenomenal shape, shape. He used to run, you know, marathons, he did all kinds of track work and this and that. So <clears throat> just, just one of those guys that, uh, loved hanging out with. Uh, in fact, I was, I was hanging out with him. Uh, we were out bugling bulls in, in North Idaho, um, that morning of, you know, uh, 9-11. I was actually, I just pitched some bugles into this basin I was going to dump down to the bottom of this base and came back to my truck and I heard what happened, you know, the, uh, the airplanes, you know, run into the towers and all that. And so I got a hold of Dallas. We went back and ended up, you know, heading back home and watching what was that, what was going on. But, um, yeah, I spent, boy, I spent a couple years with Dallas learning the Northwoods of Idaho, which in my opinion is some of the hardest area to hunt elk. It's all about calling. There's no spot and stock up there. Um, you know, it's not water hole hunting. It's not anything like that. It's, it's, it's learning the cadence. It's learning their behavior. It's learning how to work a bull. And, um, you know, the first year I hunted with him, I shot a two point, which is perfect. That's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to start small. Right. And I worked my tail off. It took me two and a half weeks to kill that two point in North Idaho. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, after that, um, you know, everything, I just started figuring things out. I'd go back and hunt with him the next year and, and I'd stay with him for two weeks and just learn more and more and more. And so I just soaked it up. And the guy was such a good mentor, um, you know, and, and all I had to do to get motivated is go downstairs and look in this guy's basement. And he had some phenomenal old gnarly bulls that he'd killed in North Idaho that nobody knows about. Um, you know, he's not one to brag or uh, anything like that. You know, you in today's world, he would not be a, a guy that's posting pictures anywhere. Um, so yeah, just salt of the earth kind, kind of guy. And yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he taught me the ropes on elk hunting. So what was the most important lesson that Dallas blood taught you? Um, I would say one of the, one of the things that he taught me that, uh, he taught me how to rake he was really, and this is before raking was popular. It's before raking bull, raking bulls was as a fad, which it is now. It's kind of the word's been out for a few years now. 
he, uh, I mean, he would bloody his knuckles raking in bulls, and it worked because not a lot of not a lot of people were doing it back then. Um, and he taught me that. He taught me to not be quiet. Uh, one of his biggest things was don't try to be sneaky. Don't be stealthy. You're, you're chasing elk. These things are loud. These things are noisy. They walk through the woods. You're hearing sticks break. So he's like, you see a stick, step on it. So um, just a completely different approach than what I would have taken if I would have never met him. And it's true. You know, I can't tell you how many times we've walked right into bulls just being noisy. And uh, that was one of the things that was super interesting to me. And I, you know, I didn't buy in right away, but it quickly became apparent that, you know, being noisy in the woods is, is a good thing for elk because that's what they are. They're noisy. So I'd say that's probably one of the most important pieces. And then the whole cadence thing, you know, how to work into a bull and how to not go after a bull too fast and um, kind of sit back and feel them out when they're ready. One of his big things was, workable some days they're ready some days they're not ready you know you can kind of tell at the tone of their voice uh there's there's going to be a few days in the season maybe three where that bull is going to come in and he's going to want to fight you and that was kind of his thing so once he found a good bull he'd go in he'd locate it he'd get a feel for it and if it wasn't ready it wasn't ready and so um i've taken that approach in, in the way that I've chased elk a lot and it's worked out. Um, now that, that works at a certain time of year and then it doesn't work at other times of year, early season, it doesn't work. Um, but if you have the time in the middle of that, in the middle of that rut, it works. There's going to be a point where they just get so fired up that <clears throat> they're a lot easier to call in a lot easier to pick a fight with. What do you mean by a cadence? Can you describe that? Yeah. Um, how you're calling to these bulls, trying not to blow them out of the water, um, learning how to work a small bull, a raghorn bull, um, you know, fire with fire. I mean, his thing was working mature herd bulls, uh, not messing with the dinks. And uh, he did not, he taught me to not shy away with being as growly as possible, as possible. Um, you want the biggest bulls, the heaviest, most mature, big old bulls like he's got in his basement. You better come at him with a growl. You better come at him with something similar to them. Um, you know, if they got a big old heavy antler, you better have a big old heavy stick. And you better make that stick sound exactly like that one's antler raking that tree. You don't go using a one-inch stick um, trying to get a bull to actually commit to fighting you uh, that's got a lot heavier antler than you have a stick. Because there's a certain sound, there's a certain tone when you're raking. If you got a, you know, a big old four or five inch sucker, that sounds like a, a really mature bull. Um, once you've done it out there, you, you realize oh, that's got a certain sound to it. Well, those bur bulls are pretty keen on that. They know. Um, versus if I just have this wispy little skinny dead stick, a little one inch, two inch stick, it doesn't sound the same. It sounds like a raghorn. And, and so... You know, they want to size each other up. They want to figure out, do I even go over there? Or is this bull even worth going to look at? Because first they kind of go by bugle. Then they go by scrape. Uh, the sound of the antlers in the in the trees. After that, it's they want to size each other up. So that was one of the big advantages. Dallas wasn't into frontal shots. He was into side shots. He wanted that broadside shot. So that third step um, after the 
the bugle and after the raking, that third step was they're going to size each other up. And so when you're bugling in a bull, that bull is going to come in and give you a broadside shot versus coming in for a cow call looking for you, right? So that was, you know, obviously I've changed some of the things that he taught me. Um, things have changed in the way of frontal shots and this and that. But in his mind, you want that broadside shot, and the best way to do that is never cow call. Go at him with a bugle and get him to where you're picking a fight where they come into that little third sequence, which is sizing each other up visually, and they'll do that, you know, by size. So they give you that nice side uh, broadside shot. So, is Dallas still alive today? Yeah. Yep. Is he? He's still getting after it. Really? He, uh, he? He's got some grandkids now, so he's taking them out. And wow. um, yeah, shoot, last year, I, I think it was last year, he got himself another five point bowl. And gosh, I mean, the guy's incredible. He's in his seventies, mm. and he's had a few health issues now, um, but. <sighs> for his age and what he can do and his, his conditioning. And he's just got this drive about him that, man, he will go and go and go and go and go. Um, and I love guys like that. I mean, he is, he is not, he's not PC. <laughs> He'll tell you like it is. Uh, he's not going to beat around the bush. And he, if you're doing it wrong, he's going to tell you if he thinks that you're doing it wrong. So, um, it's funny, a little side note on Dallas. I remember a story he told me. He's one of those non-materialistic type guys, right? So you know how at the end of a, a career, he worked at this mill for a lot of years. They give you something. Well, he got a gold watch. They gave him as a parting gift going into retirement. They gave him this gold watch. And he, I remember him telling me, he's like, well, what do I need a dang gold watch for? I got a watch. I don't need this gold watch. I could just take the gold watch. You know, it's a nice watch. He's like, no, I don't want that watch. And he's that stubborn. He's got a watch. So what does he need this gold watch for? It's this fancy thing. He doesn't need it. So he did, he did not want to take that watch. And it's just interesting, you know, how 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 he is. And uh, shoot, he, he had just his camo. It was so dang faded out. You know, I'm there in my fancy new camo, and he's got this old stuff. It looks like it's 20 years old and, and barely camo anymore. It's so faded. But... Um, just not a materialistic type guy and um yeah easy guy to really respect and follow really enjoyed it do you still keep in touch with him i do yep i talk to him on the phone every once in a while and, yeah. and check in on him and he tells me about the hunts that he did with his grandkids and he's definitely to the point where he's not going in as far and he's doing more whitetail hunts with a rifle and this and that and just enjoys getting out and um hanging with his kids and his and his grandkids and so um yeah we're at a little bit different level now because I really like to get in there far, but I can't say enough about what I learned from Dallas and uh, time spent with him. Some of the some of the best years. So, when did you start finding early success with mature animals? Oh man, uh, early success with mature animals. I think as far as elk go, after after meeting Dallas Blood, um, yeah, immediately. I, I think, like I said, the learning curve. With him, I came back to Washington. I started putting in for some states or for some tags here in Washington. And um, oh, the year that I didn't go over there, I drew I drew a tag here and uh, killed a really nice six pole. I put those tactics that he had taught me 
to work here in Washington. And I remember back in the day talking about some of these tactics that he had and sharing with guys at the bow shop. And they were like, that doesn't work here. You got to cow call. You have to cow call. It's like they, they're going to turn around and run. But I had already understood, yeah, they're going to do that if you push them or you do it a certain way, right? But um, so I put his tactics that he taught me to work here. And that first year I drew a tag here on the east side, which you have to draw, you know, what they call the big bull tag in the, in the east side of the, the mountains here in Washington. I put that, that same thing to work. And, man, I bugled in a really nice six-point bull. In fact, that picture right there, that's the bull. That was that's my first nice one bull. here in Washington. Just a, just a nice six-point bull, right? Well, um, I, that, was, that, was, that was my first opportunity here, and that's, that's really where it started. Because I hadn't taken a, a real quality bull. I'd taken a nice bull in, in Idaho, but that bull was, was kind of the start of it for me. You look a little younger in this picture. Yeah, yeah. Short hair, no scruff. Definitely better conditioned, <laughs> but yeah, that, that bull led to another big bull. In fact, the story of that first bull is, um, I worked my tail off for that. It was, it was a area that had some elk, but wasn't known for any real big elk. Um, but that bull right there, that first six point, I, I had such a scream fest with the with this herd bull um one night one evening found a pretty good herd of cows and it had a big old bull i I never did see it but this thing was absolutely going berserk i mean he was primed and ready and this evening i got in he must have only been 40 yards from me but he was just over this hump and i had him so fired up i thought it was going to happen it just didn't happen it got dark on me and so i backed out and the next morning i showed up a little bit below where I'd left him that night. Well, they had gone up on the upper part to feed, dropped back down that next morning. And I set up and, um, and that's when, uh, I got down there and, and I screamed and we went back and forth, had the same exact interaction that we had the night before. And I called this bull in. I called this six point bull in and he came down and he stopped at 13 yards and I drilled him and it was like a holy smokes. It works here in Washington too. The same scenarios that I was learning in Idaho's worked here. And I, I was so happy to stick that bull. Well, I stuck that bull and he ran off. And then about five seconds later, I'm kind of watching my bull stagger. And, uh, here comes this freight train of another bull coming right off the hill on the same path that this one came down and I stuck at 13 yards it was this big old giant seven by eight and he he walked right in front of me at about 20 yards and he screams and he you know I got to see him and I'm thinking did I really just stick that other six point you know when I got this monster I figured it's like a 350 class bull I didn't know how to you know add up inches at this point very well but I was like holy smokes and I remember uh uh, that that bull chased my bull after I'd shot my bull. That big bull chased my bull down the valley a little bit, and then he went back up to his cows. So what I thought I had done is called away the herd bull, but it was just a satellite to the big one, right? Well, I remember calling my dad up after I got I got the six point. And I was more excited about seeing that monster, big old seven by eight, come in front of me than I was even about the six point that I got. 
Well, I drew that tag the very next year, and I'll make this short. I ended up going back in there that very next year, and I killed that bull. I killed that seven by eight bull, and he was a three seventy one bull. And so, um, yeah, it was just a unique. I can't. First off, the odds of me drawing that tag two years in a row was pretty slim. But um, I went back in there and I screamed and picked a fight with this monster and broke limbs and scraped and yeah ended up getting that seven by eight bull that very next season so it worked two years in a row <laughs> that's awesome is that is yep, that, that's that one, one in there we were yeah. just looking at yep that's him no kidding so that you know that just that just told me that everything dallas had taught me worked and it worked here mm. it's gonna work here it's gonna work everywhere so um yeah that's kind of where you know killing two bulls like that two years in a row um, that really started it. You know, that's where it's like, man, I don't want to go smaller. I just want to keep after it. And now I just want to hit new country and, and try to keep out at, at this uh, big bull thing. And yeah. Um, and anybody listening who's wondering about the satellite six point that you shot, you know, at first glance, it doesn't, it does. It's not necessarily a satellite bull. It doesn't, it doesn't look like a small six point. It's a nice six point. It's, yeah. Yeah. It could easily be a herd bull in yeah. a lot of places in the West. Right. Yeah. I, I completely thought it was until yeah. I saw the big one. It's an, yeah. yeah it's th- probably like a, I don't know. It's probably like a two ninety buck yeah. or bull or something yeah. like that. Yep. Nice thirds. Yeah. Nice sword. I was, points. I was yeah. totally happy was a, until monster came cool out bull. and came right in front of me and screamed. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's where it started. I, I, I mean, Dallas had a lot of influence there, and mm-hmm. um, you know, on the other, probably about that same time frame. I just wanted to up everything. I wanted to keep learning. Obviously, you know, I was pretty humbled by meeting a guy like Dallas, and you know, at that point in your hunting career, you think you know stuff, and then you meet a guy like him, and you realize you don't know anything. Um, there's just way more to it, and then you get humbled. And uh, going out on your own and, you know, you, you have successes and failures and then you really start figuring out, wow, this is this is hard. There's a lot to learn. Soak it up and just get every single experience you can and just keep trying and keep keep after it. So how old were you when you killed this first bull? That I think I would have been 20, you know, 20, 20 ish, 20. Yeah, somewhere in there. Early 20s. Early 20s. Early 20s. Yeah, early 20s. And, okay. And at that time, so you're, start, you're learning the elk hunting thing from Dallas and you're having success here in Washington. Yeah. Had you started killing big muleys up high yet? Um, I'd killed, I'd killed some pretty good muleys with my, with my rifle at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, back then, it was still, I was still into October rifle season here in Washington. And I was having some pretty good success there. Uh, just following that same game game plan of, of finding new country. Um, we knew some stuff from hiking, from hunting, uh, or from just going back in these fishing, these lakes. And, um, you know, we learned some phenomenal country and we, we just get back beyond where we weren't hunting around people. And that, that took us to some wild country. And yeah, we were having some pretty good success, uh, rifle hunting for muleys here in, here in Washington. I wasn't hunting out of state or anything like that. That, most of that stuff started coming, you know, probably in my late twenties, uh, early thirties, where I started going out of state, doing a lot of the, lot more of the Idaho. Really serious about Idaho and Montana, and that's that's once I started hunting out of state, you know, that's kind of where it 
the big muley bug really started to, I think I started to just get better at it, you know, figure more things out. You know, when you hunt the same spot, you get good at your area, but you really don't know if you've got it figured out until you can go to new areas and, and figure them out and, and be successful there. Um, I got a lot more respect for guys that can do this, get quality animals, mature animals in different locations, not just hunting the same spot they've hunted since, you know, they were 16, you know, the same, 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 same. Yeah. They're going to figure it out, but I got so much respect for guys that can go around and figure out an area, figure out a new state and just learn it off the cuff and make it, make success happen. Um, and that's what I want to do. Speaking of that, you mentioned a hunt in Northwest Montana yeah. uh, earlier when we were talking. You had some, you faced some challenges there oh, yeah. with some deep snow. And kind of like you were mentioning earlier in our conversation, low deer densities, right? Yeah. You tell Northwest Montana, Northwest Montana is tough. I don't care who you are. It is tough. Whitetail hunting is one thing. There's a lot of, there's a lot of whitetails up there. Pretty low numbers for elk, but really no low numbers for deer, um, mule deer. Um, the high country is tough. It's similar to here. It's really steep. It's really thick. And just finding openings where you can kind of get your glassing in and, and get an advantage, um, stockable bucks, is, is tough in northwest Montana. You got to do a lot of homework. You got to do a lot of legwork. Um, you know, one thing that's been successful for me up there is finding fires, finding old burns, finding fresh burns. Um, that kind of gives you a little bit more of an upper hand in a lot of these really thick areas. It just kind of draws, draws bucks in, but low density, which is a challenge in itself. I mean, just finding a, finding a deer at some, sometimes up there is tough, a mule deer. Whereas you go down low and you're seeing a lot of whitetail, but, um, yeah, similar to here, you get a lot of weather, you get fog, you get rain, you get sleet, you get snow, all these things. And yeah, I've had several hunts up there, uh, one in particular where it was another solo hunt, got in there and I, I, I learned this, I learned this burn. I, I talked to a biologist and um, she had given me this tip. So there was a burn that happened a couple of years ago. It was in an area that didn't have a road to it. And it burned from the backcountry, from this wilderness out. And uh, she said, this might be something that you're looking for. Because I kind of gave her all the criteria that I was looking for. It was, you know, a burn within so many years and this and that. And it's, it's not something that people can just see from the road. It's not something that people can easily access. And that's what I wanted. And so she kind of gave me, she, she gave me a few. And I narrowed it down to this one. I was like, I'm going to spend some time here. Well, I got there and the weather was kind of cruddy. It was, it was snowy and sleety and what time of year was this deep snow? This was in November. Um, and man, the, the, the snow just by the nature of the hill, it, where the trailhead, it wasn't a trailhead where I parked my truck and where I started my hike, there's a decent, there's a few inches. But where the burn was, there was a lot of inches. I don't know how many. There was a lot of snow. And so but it took me a long time to get up there. And then once I did get up there, I, gosh, it really sounds real similar to this Nevada. My Nevada story is I found a buck immediately. Um, and, uh, yeah, I had, a, I had an epic failure in my gear because this is a rifle hunt. 
And yeah, I, I saw this buck, had him really close. He was 30 yards. And my firing pin froze up. It was just froze up on me. And so I sat there working that, trying to figure that out. And, and I, I couldn't do anything. And so, wait, okay. So did you shoot this buck? I mean, you shot, I mean, you pulled the trigger and you didn't get a yep, boom. Got no boom. And at 30 yards, did he, what, what did he do? How did he react? He was with, it was him and a handful of does. I don't remember how many does it was, but I, so I'm trying to get this thing to go. Nothing's happening. And so that buck, all he did was, well, he spooked, he ran and he ran up and up and up into the deeper snow. Well, I had to back out of there and go back down and work on this gun and pull it out. And it, it, it had just got some crud. It was, it was locked up. And, um, and so I had to come all the way out and then go all the way back in. So, <laughs> so how far are we talking? I mean, it's through the snow, right? So it's, yeah, it's not that far. I mean, I'd say probably a mile and a half is okay. all But hard work, but really hard work with the snow. I didn't have snowshoes. Um, but it was deep up in that burn, but it was just such a perfect spot. Um, it's kind of a South facing Ridge. And so it was, it was like the spot that these deer would funnel out of this backcountry down into this burn. And, uh, I couldn't believe how the plan just worked out like right out of the gates. There he is. Like there's the, that's the, that's a good buck. So I got down, got the gun working, got back up in there. And now I got to try to refine this buck. Well, it's thick up there. So the only open is this fire is this burn, right? So there's some pole timber and, you know, I spent six more days trying to find this darn thing. I saw one other buck in those six days and it was a spike. It was a spike mule deer. I saw some whitetail, a few whitetail, um, which surprised me where they were on the hill. They were pretty far up there, but I traipsed around in that deep snow trying to find him, trying to find him, trying to find him. Um, but I was so dead set on finding this buck cause he was a really unique wide buck and, uh, he just had a certain flair to it. And it was just like, is he in here? Yep. Is he's, it, that's the one we right were just there. looking at earlier. Yep. Okay. Yep. So he's, he's a little over 30 inches, but you know, it, it's not the biggest buck in the world, but he's really unique. He's just, his, his antlers lay straight out. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I really wanted that buck and I, and I had gone into that hunt. Um, I had already taken a good buck in Washington and I'd gone over there with the intentions of just focusing, learning some new country, hope for the best, work my tail off. And once I saw him, that was the buck I was going to go for. So yeah, it took another six days before I finally caught back up to him. And again, I was in really, really tight. I, I ended up shooting him at 30 yards and I got him six days later. But that was some of the hardest hiking, hunting, mind-numbing, not seeing anything for day after day after day, just trying to find a doe. Uh, it was just tough, really, really tough. How did you find him? Or did he just well, pop back up? Yeah, so what I did was I went all the way to the top of that burn to where, you know, the snow was getting so high, it was almost up to my waist practically. It was a real light, fluffy snow. And I would find on occasion, you know, where, where there's some tracks up in that deep stuff. And, um, you know, in my mind, I had pushed that deer out of there and he was going to go up, but he was going to come back down because it's the only spot where I had found any mule deer does. 
and they were rutting. You know, he was his neck was fully swollen. I saw him, and he was rutting hard. And I just figured he'd end up back there. But I searched that mountain high and low, side to side, every which way, and I just never caught back up to him. But I did see his tracks a couple times. Um, what I assumed were his tracks. It was like the only good sized track cutting through there. But in that country, it's not like you can just find a vantage and sit back and glass it. You kind of have to still hunt in a way. So, um, you know, it was not, not the easiest, most conducive to, to trying to find that, to relocate that buck. So I just figured I'm just going to, you know, stay power. I'm just going to keep at this day in, day out, keep my wind right, try not to spook him and hope for the best. And, um, it was one of those weird things where I just had a feeling, uh, this last morning, I, I had a feeling that he was going to be on the side hill and that's where I went and I saw a doe. I was like, jackpot. I saw another doe, another doe, another doe. And then I found him and he was 30 yards down there. And, and it was just a perfect, perfect ending to that ridiculous weather. Cause it, it turned warm at a certain point where it got super slushy, super wet. So you're hiking around in sloshy boots and, and it was sleeting and this and that. And that's just typical for Northwest Montana weather, uh, in, even in November. So it's just a hunt that, that basically it wore me out that, you know, I'd already done several hunts at that point. It just wore me out. And so to end on, on actually getting that buck was pretty, pretty awesome. Did you say 30 yards again? Yeah. Oh. Yep. 30 so the, yards. So the first one was at 30 About yards. 30 yards. Was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So both times I got within bow range. I mean, I could have easily got this thing with my bow. In slushy snow. And yeah. Yeah. And I, well, and the, the, to top it off, when I got him that, that last day on that sixth day, it wasn't slushy. It was frozen solid because it would slush up mm-hmm. during the day, but then it would freeze at night. It was crunchy, but I was on this little lip and, uh, and he was kind of off of it down and I think it muffled me just enough because I would go and I would peer over this edge and I would back off and, and then go a little bit and then just kind of peer off this lip. And, and sure enough, that's where I ended up seeing that first doe. And then I just had this feeling like, oh, there's a doe. He's going to be here. There's just not enough deer up here for him to not be with these does. And, and it worked out. So, had you, had you seen the deer there before? Or what gave you that feeling that that ridge would have that buck? I had just seen some tracks. I'd seen a few mule deer tracks uh they weren't white-tailed it was high on the hill and these were these were mule deer tracks and i just felt that they were going to be there and and they were and so it worked out but uh yeah that was i was pretty happy to get that monster (laughs) what i thought was a monster he was not a monster he's just wide you know it was he's just a wide buck he's a really cool looking buck yeah yeah i thought so he's got a couple stickers on him and nice brow tines and yeah he's 30 inches and just pretty unique and for northwest montana you, know, you can see right now he's got all those scars all over his face yeah, so yeah. he's a fighter yeah there's probably another buck that maybe not as big but could easily get into his face because his antlers are so spread out like that mm-hmm. so you talked about an epic bonk epic bonk yeah what an what's epic an epic bonk. bonk an epic bonk for me was uh i i came back from russia and I was in the worst shape possible. I was uh, just guiding, and you know, you don't really realize it. You're out fishing every day. You're doing a little bit of walking, but not enough. Not even close to enough. So you're standing on the river, and um, there's these, 
I, th- I think I'm going to blame it on the cooks because they made some awesome food over there. Some of the best food. And they also made these cookies. We call them hockey pucks. They were pretty hard, but over time you grew to love them. And so you'd stuff your waiter pouches with these hockey pucks. And I can't even tell you how many hundreds of hockey pucks I ate over there. So I came back pretty, pretty out of shape. And, um, man, I don't know. Uh, I came back from that and I went right into a mule deer hunt into the high country and yeah, it was a failure big time because there was, there was deep snow hiking in. I knew I was in trouble. It was only six miles in and I was struggling. Mind you, it, it had snow, so it was tough, but I was so beat down by the time I got to where I, where I was going to camp. I mean, I was like struggling to get there. I just could not believe I'd never had that feeling before where I'm just like, it's hard to take any more steps, you know? And I'd just never been that out of shape from when I, from when I came back from Russia. So, you know, I'm back there by myself and I've got this buck that I want to go for. And I'm, I'm, I, I'm seeing bucks, but my body's just telling me, no, he's like, you'll never get back from that heck hole down there. You know, you're just not going to get back. You know, it's too hard. You're not going to get the animal out. And so I would, I would end up just looking and not going. And so, uh, yeah, that was a hunt where I was super frustrated because my body just wasn't performing. And so I came out and I didn't notch my tag that year. And, um, yeah, I've I've never let that happen again. So that's kind of why I I really, really focus on the conditioning. Now I don't ever want to, have my body say no when I really want to go after something. Don't ever want my conditioning to be a factor ever. So I've, <clears throat> I've set myself up now with these challenges and races and runs and working out and conditioning to where it's just never going to happen. Conditioning is not going to be an issue. So, and that was in your twenties. Yeah. Yep. I'd say, shoot, I was probably 25 that year that I had that, epic bonk <laughs> i left when i first heard it i was like epic bonk epic huh. bonk yeah oh man i like i say i haven't had one since but i never had experienced that before where y- your body just won't go mm. I, even climbing out of there i i was coming back and uh, i had like two miles left to go up these switchbacks and i was coming out empty i didn't even have meat on my back just my camp and i hit switchbacks and i just couldn't go any farther i had to throw my throw my uh you know, backpack or my, my sleeping bag down on the trail and, um, and just sleep and, and try to, you know, recover a little bit. Cause I just couldn't make it out. I had a, uh, an experience that reminds me of this spring solo bear hunt in Idaho in some rough country. And, uh, I hiked in and I had been playing around with the ketogenic thing and oh, yeah. getting off carbs and, and also playing around with dehydrating dehydrating food and taking my own meals in, right? So I left all the Mountain House at home, left all the uh, granola bars and candy bars and all that behind. Yeah. And I only took in stuff that I had dehydrated, which was, uh, well, I took in some mashed potatoes. Everything else was uh, dehydrated elk burger, lean elk burger, oh, yeah. and a uh, bunch of eggs. Like I'd make my breakfast protein. eggs and then just throw it in the dehydrator and just tons of protein and some fats and stuff like that. And I put some miles in getting back in there 
and it was the second or third day I did a lot of elevation and some some good miles. They were it was trail miles, but still I was humping it back there, you know. And what happened was I went in on in a new area and there was an outfitter with horses baiting on the first three drainages in. So I had to go past him mm-hmm. to get into some country that wasn't being hunted. Oh, yeah. So I was, I don't know, 11 miles or something like that. So nothing crazy, but it was uh, on the breaks of the Salmon River. So oh, wow. real up and down stuff. Yeah. And uh, I get back in there, and it's like the second or third day, and I just flat out didn't have anything. Nothing in the nothing tank. Nothing in the tank. I got back there, and I, it, the, the weather got bad, and so I, I took a, a quote-unquote rain day and just laid under the tarp. Which it, it wasn't terrible, it's a good but uh, it was rest, it was right? a perfect weather day because I yeah. needed to just recover. Right, and I ended up eating like all the carbs and sugars and a little, little <laughs> bit of stuff. I took some chocolate, like everything. I just did. I you just, find immediately like all of a sudden you had energy? No, it not took enough. me a little while. Yeah, it took me a while, and I even felt low coming out. I ended up not shooting a bear. Um, found some bears, but nothing big. Nothing I wanted to go after. Um, no boars. I saw a nice one across the river in another unit, but, uh, yeah, I didn't find anything to shoot. So I came out, but I just came out low. I was on, I made it out. No problem. I was low. I was low. And that's the first time I've ever felt that way. And I think terrible feeling. Yeah, it was. And it was weird. I thought like, Oh, I'm going to, this is going to be awesome. You remember that though, right? I mean, it's like one of those things that, Oh, it's going to change the way you do it next time. Absolutely. Sure. Um, definitely a learning experience that, you know, if you're, if you're competitive and you really want to make it happen year after year and, and fill tags, yeah, you just, you really want to get that dialed in and, and learn from that experience and figure it out. All right. Tell me about the Tamarack buck story. The Tamarack buck. All right. Well, this, this is a special hunt for me. Um, it was, uh, it was an, it was an area. I think, I think it has more to do with the area that I found, uh, it was kind of a off the wall spot. I just had a feeling about, I had, I had seen it on some maps. Um, just had a, just had a feeling it's kind of hard to describe, but totally new venture into the Washington backcountry. Um, so what I did for this buck was first off the climb in was ridiculous. It, yeah, it was nine miles in to where I set up my base camp. And it was a year where we had a real early snow. And so I got in there and, and with that early snow, it had, it had come and threw down a lot, about a foot and a half of snow. And then it had melted off on these certain, uh, on the South facing slopes there. And so I had, I did a lot of traipsing through deep snow to get to this place that I wanted to get to, because there was a lot of little North slopes that I had to cross. And so it was a lot of a lot of plowing through post holing through stuff and getting wet feet in the whole nine yards. So this, this put me up there at about 7,400 feet in Washington, which is pretty dang high for Washington. And it's up in that some of the most awesome country you can get when you're up in the Tamaracks and the Alpine of Washington, that's a special place. You know, there's something about that, those, those needles on those Tamaracks and just the colors that are, that are popping that time of year. I love it. I just absolutely love it. And then to be able to hunt it and glass it and, and find a mature buck in that country is phenomenal because they're few and far between. I mean, it, it literally feels like a needle in a haystack trying to find a, a quality buck in that country because there's just not that many of them up there. So I had a hunt where I, I did just that. I got in there. I'd seen this on a map and I 
like I said before, a totally new country, got in there, set up a base camp, found a pretty good buck. Um, I think it was like the second or third morning. I can't quite remember. And it was a buck that I really, I really almost wanted. I wanted to put a stock on it, but something told me just to hold off. You can do, you can find better. And I was just enjoying myself up there. I mean, the bear tracks were, you know, this was, this was October and just that having that snow up there, the, I was seeing bear tracks all over the place and, um, I had a bear tag in my pocket. So I was pretty excited about that. I was seeing, you know, pretty good sized buck tracks, crisscross and pitter pattern across these, these tamarack flats up there and on the very tip top. And man, I, I found, I found one really good scrape and this is country that was not, not ideal for glassing. So you couldn't just get this vantage and expect to, you know, see everything. So it was, it was locating little spots. You, you would get to a spot, you'd work your tail off to get to a spot. And then, you know, you could glass it and be done glassing it in no time. And then it's a waiting game. So I spent a lot of time just covering a ton of country up there. I'd see, you know, openings on the tip tops and I'd go. And then I'd go hit another one. I'd hit another one. So I was just beating myself up there in the in the high country, but I was loving it. Like I said, there was a lot of snow in these basins and um and then is like the weather just got nice. It was cold as heck, but it was sunny. So not the best conditions for deer hunting, but it was just phenomenal. Uh there were some lakes up there and it was just a great deal. And I had seen this big scrape, like I said, and I knew there had to be a real good buck up there with fresh scrape. What do you mean by scrape? That was a buck rub. A rub. And it had just okay. happened, and it was on a really nice big, big tree, so it wasn't something small. And I was going up into this country with not the highest of expectations. I wanted to get a mature buck, as as always, but I knew it was going to be real difficult just to find a buck, let alone get a shot up in there. Um, and, and man, I, I think I was five or six days in and I was only planning on being up there about a week, you know, I think it was seven or eight days. And, uh, man, I was, I was working across this ridge and, and in some, I wasn't still hunting, but I was working across to get to an opening that I could do some glassing. And I located this buck, um, by hearing his, his antlers, it was dead calm. And I hear some rattling. And so I hear the clanking and I immediately know there's two bucks going. I want to see what it is. So I'm going, 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 trying to find this thing. And like I said, it's not real open up there, but, um, you know, pretty dead or pretty thick. And, and lo and behold, I, I came across and I find it and I see one small little bucks, like a little two point. And I couldn't quite see the other buck. So, but I figured, you know, a small little buck or oh, the other one's probably small too. So I went a little bit further. And, uh, and then they, they come together and they start just like gingerly, like scraping, you know, or locking up with each other. Well, one of them was a really nice buck, nice, big, heavy four point. And the other one was that little two point. Well, that's what all, what all the commotion was about. And, um, yeah, I ended up getting that, I ended up getting that nice big four point and just the most picturesque place you can ever imagine. There was, there was a couple of lakes like right below it, alpine setting, everything. The colors were awesome. Tamaracks were awesome. And, um, and I was there completely by myself. 
and just some of the most wild country Washington has to offer. And, and, uh, yeah, I don't know what it was about that buck, but that just, that was like, it was just like the pinnacle. That was like, I'd accomplished everything I went up there to accomplish. And for whatever reason, that buck stands out as, as one of my best accomplishment and most successful trips. Um, just the way it worked out. And, I one tripped that thing out of there and it was a, it was a beastly buck and I don't know how heavy my pack was, but it was really heavy. And yeah, I paid the price for that. I, I came back with bruises on my back and just beat down tired. But, um, yeah, it was a ton of elevation gain and a ton of elevation loss. And just one of those hunts that it felt like I did everything right. I put myself in the right spot. I had done my homework ahead of time. I was in great shape going into it. Uh, I learned the country as I was up there and, and kind of figured out where I should be. And I focused on an area where I'd seen that one big scrape and I was seeing some tracks and it, it all just came together and, and ended up being successful on that, on that trip. So that was, that was the Tamarack buck, what I call the Tamarack buck. So there might be some folks listening that don't know what tamaracks are. Oh yeah, why okay. that's special? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a type of tree. Um, you find it up in the high country. Um, if you find it down one, it burns like crazy. It's a really hot burning wood. So um, one of the best burning woods for a fire up there. But uh, yeah, you see the the yellow needles up there, um, and those are those are the tamaracks. Yeah, it's a neat tree. I think it would be similar in it's in in washington is it north idaho a lot yeah um oregon a little bit i think could be yeah i would uh, imagine yeah maybe, but uh, definitely northwest like british yeah. columbia yep seeing it idaho a lot uh used yeah. to see it over there a lot when we hunted that north country it reminds me of maybe what the quaking aspen is in like colorado or something because mm-hmm. it's it's one of the trees that defies norms right so mm-hmm. it's a uh, it's a conifer with mm-hmm. needles that yep. every fall sheds its needles like a deciduous tree does. Yep. They turn yellow and then they fall, but before they before they drop, you've got all these beautiful like glowing golden glowing gold um, trees up in a lot of times in the rocks in that high country alpine stuff, and so it really contrasts against those gray rocks. And yeah, yeah, it's you'll beautiful. have like snow and green trees around it, and then you just got these glowing yellow trees, these golden trees out there, and. Yeah, it's just pretty awesome. It's just kind of like defines the high country for me in the yeah. season. I've got a picture on my desktop um, from a high buck hunt in the Pasatan wilderness a few yeah. years ago. And I got up into one of those high basins yep. and, and the low bush uh, huckleberries are all red covering the whole oh, yeah. floor. And then there's just that mixture of the evergreens with the tamaracks. Yep. So you got all this color, this deep green, emerald green, the tamaracks are gold and then the reds and, yeah. and then the grays of the granite rocks. And it's one of my favorite photos. Oh man. Yeah, there's something about it. I mean, there's certain, I think, I think a lot of factors come into play as to why that hunt was one of my favorite. Um, it was, it was a unique challenge in the, in the terrain that I was in the Tamarack, everything was perfect. There was snow on the ground. The sun was out all these things that you're just not used to here in the Pacific Northwest on a, on a high mountain hunt like that. So, um, I think of it, a lot of it had to do with those factors, not just the quality of that buck, but, but all the other things that were, outside of that that's a neat buck yeah yeah he's nice, nice heavy horn. heavy horns yeah. it's kind of what you look for uh you know if you can find a heavy four point like that you know, darker horns but just knobby heavy yeah really cool do you have any favorite elk hunts 
I've got a lot of favorite elk hunts, but <laughs> do, you have, do you have one one elk hunting story to Absolutely, tell? Absolutely, yeah. Um, okay, so I've got I've got a hunt. I uh, I was hunting here in Washington in the high country, and this uh, again this was an area I wasn't super familiar with. I did go in and I scouted it. Um, but I scouted it early, so I, I kind of found, I found some areas that, that looked good to me. You know, they weren't calling yet when I was scouting, so I, I wasn't seeing elk on my scouting trips, but I was finding some wallows, and I was finding areas where there was, you know, plenty of sign. So when I, when I ended up going in there, um, I, shoot, I, I ended up camping by this meadow, and there was a lake nearby. And the first thing, you know, I brought, you know, I always try to pack really light. That's one of the keys to be able to just be mobile and travel. Well, I had, I had packed from my scouting trip, I had saw a bunch of fish in this lake. And so I knew I wanted to bring a little lightweight fishing rod. So I brought that. And so I, I camped next to this lake, next to this giant meadow. And um, I, the first night I was in there, I couldn't even sleep. I don't have trouble sleeping, but the elk were calling like crazy. I mean, I could look, uh, I remember it was a full moon. It was light out. I could look out there in that meadow and see just chaos, bull screaming. And I can sleep through almost anything. My wife will tell you that, but they were so loud and so close that it was just, it was just chaos all night long. I didn't get any sleep that night. But come daylight, um, you know, I, I was struggling. I was just struggling to make it, make it happen. The winds were swirling. I could never get in tight on these things. Um, failure after failure for the first few days, I just wasn't, I just wasn't getting any success. And a lot of that had to do with the wind. But um, shoot, I ended up, uh, one of the reasons why this trip was so fun for me is I could catch fish. And I could use those carcasses and I could catch these crawdads. I didn't even know that there was crawdads in this lake. I started seeing them on the edges. And, and so I was, I was, you know, eating crawdads for breakfast before I even went out elk hunting, which was pretty cool. Like how high is this? Oh gosh, it's, I would say probably 6,000 feet. I mean, it's up there. I, I never in a million years would have thought there was crawdads in these lakes. Right. Um, but so it was a total shocker and, and I just boiled them up in my jet boil and I was, you know, eating crawdad tails, but I was using the carcasses from the fish that I was catching and, and kind of making little traps along the lake shore with that. So in the morning I'd go and I'd, I'd, you know, the crawdads would be feeding on the carcass that I'd had pinned down and then I'd just, you know, scoop them up and then go boil them up. So that was pretty unique in its own. Um, but yeah, man, I, this hunt, I, I can't tell you how many fails I had at trying to get this one big old bull. There was a bull in that meadow, and I don't know how big the herd was, but there was probably 10 or 12 satellites to this to this herd. And then there was this one bull that didn't have any tones left. You know, he'd, he was an old bull. He had to be 10 plus years old, and he didn't have any tones left. He was just, just sounded like a bear. You know, it just, you know, it just had nothing left. And so that was the bull I was going for. Um, I saw him one time in daylight where I just saw the tops of him. I didn't even see the whole thing, but I could see how big this bull was. 
And, um, and yeah, I, I, I tried to get that bull day in, day out and it just didn't happen. Wind got me several times. So I had to change locations and, and I, I went into this new spot and I gained a lot more elevation, um, spiked out and, and one, one of these days I was in there, it was, uh, it was pretty awesome. I was up on the tops, um, saw a really nice mule deer buck that morning and, uh, and shoot, I, I ended up sitting down on the top, just on this ridge where I could get a good vantage and it wasn't glassable country. It's thick, super thick, green, dark timber down below. And all of a sudden a bull sounds off below me and I hadn't even, you know, made a locator or anything like that. And, and then another bull sounds off to the right of him. And so as I'm just sitting there, I think I had my boots off and, and I was just like airing my feet out and, and I'm not doing anything. And all of a sudden I got these two bulls right below me, you know, they're probably four or 500 yards down there in the bottom, but they're going back and forth and they're doing what I want to do with one of those bulls. They got this cadence thing going and I heard them get closer and closer and I'm, I'm hearing them break stuff and all of a sudden they come together and I'm hearing their antlers go, you know, come together and just crashing. And I could tell just by the sound of their, you know, their bugles and, and everything, that they were two mature bulls. Well, one of them won. I don't know. I don't know which one, but, uh, I would have been happy with either one of them. I'm pretty sure at that point. So what I ended up doing was, um, you know, after I took a break and heard all that commotion, they, they split apart and they went their separate ways back to where they came from. So it was a struggle to get down there. It was really steep, rocky country. And so it took me a while to get down there, get below them. Um, Did you try to go down while they were still bugling at no, each other? You just not waited? At all. I just waited it out. Why is that? I was a long ways away. And uh, they actually came together pretty fast. Okay. I had had my boots off when I first heard them. And you know, I'm obviously I'm scrambling to get my stuff together when I'm, I'm hearing them, but then they came together, they locked up and then they spread apart and it happened pretty fast. But with the wind, the way it was going down, I was going to have to back down the other ridge, go way around and come in way below them. So I figured, well, I'm just going to do that. I'm not going to make any sound from here. I'm going to get down well below them and, and then, uh, you know, try to pick a fight once I get down there. And, uh, one thing you notice about, one thing you, you'll know about elk is they, if you're picking a fight with a bull, you know, always give them the advantage, always give them the hill, have, they're more comfortable coming down on you than coming up at you. Right. They got the advantage. They, they look bigger. They, they got the advantage coming down. So usually the bulls, what they'll do is they'll circle on the uphill side of you. Which, so whenever possible, you know, I try to go below them and, and have them above me so they're feeling more comfortable to come in. Well, so I got down there. It took me several hours just by the nature of how I had to go backtrack and go down and around. It was this gnarly, rocky country. I got in below them. And, uh, man, no sooner did I let out a, a locator call and all of a sudden I got three bulls going. You know, I don't know which one's which, which ones I heard. All I know is I got three bulls going. They're probably all within 150 yards. And so um, I start doing my rake and I do the whole sequence and and I'm I'm being aggressive and loud and busting stuff up and I'm um, you know breaking trees and and uh, I set up 
and I, I had this really nice six point. I could see him out there. He's probably like 70 yards out. And this is pretty thick country. So I just happened to get a lane where I could see this bull. And I had a couple of good shooting lanes if he was going to come in. So he actually got within 50 and he was coming in pretty fast. And shoot, he got, I think he got, I don't know, it was like 30 or 35 uh, yard lane. And, and I pulled back and, and I stopped him. And man, I was really close to letting one go, but I, I was really still trying to size up his antlers at this point. Um, I could not quite tell. I know he had dark antlers, but I couldn't quite tell how big he was. Um, well, that bull, he's sitting parked out there at about 35 yards and he screams. Well, <clears throat> me, I was, I was right below another bull that had come in and not 20 yards above me. I'm looking up. And I'm fully drawn, and and this one bull is out there, 35 yards. I look up, and I can see movement coming right at me. So I try to pivot around. Well, I ended up letting down my bow. I wish I hadn't let down my bow, but it just it just happened. I didn't want to jerk it right back, and I just kind of pivoted my body around. And sure enough, out comes this giant bull. I mean, he looked like a monster. He's it's a really steep pitch. He's right above me. He's, you know, maybe 10 yards from me. And he looks like he's just huge. He's got snot coming out of his nose and he rips a big old bugle and he's just right there. And I can't believe he's not looking at me because it's pretty wide open between me and him. And, um, and man, I mean, he is just, his nostrils are flaring. He's so close. It's one of the most, it's one thing I'll never forget about that. It's just all the snot coming out and he's just, pissed off you know ready to ready to take on anything and and so the problem is i'm not drawn and he's standing there staring a hole through me well he takes a couple steps and there was this one piece of timber where he got it like his eyeball behind it and i turn and i tried to pull back and draw and i get fully drawn but he saw movement and he pivoted around and as soon as he pivoted around you know i stopped him for just like a half a second i let go and just the angle, the steepness of the angle on this shot, it actually was a great shot, <clears throat> but it also veered up and it spined him. So that bull, as soon as I let go, within a quarter second, he's rolling right down at me. So I jump out of the way and he rolled right through where I was, or he would have, he would have taunt, you know, toppled right through where I was. And, and, um, yeah, I, I, no sooner I'm looking at this bull and he's, you know, he's almost, he almost just came through me and I look over and that other bull, all he heard was a big commotion. So now he's over there tearing up some brush and he screams and he's, he's just thinking another bull is over here, like tearing up brush. But, um, but so I got to watch that. And, and luckily I shot the bull I did. He was a little bit bigger, but, um, yeah, one of the best experiences getting that, getting that bull out of there and, he was down again in a really nasty hole. So, um, how far did he roll? Oh, he only rolled. He he rolled probably five yards past where I was standing, okay. and then he he toppled. He was just he died really really fast. But uh, just one of it was weird shots. It was super steep and just the angle of it. It was just like, yeah, it, it spined him. I've never had that happen, and and it dropped him like a like a rock. But. Um, yeah, I didn't have to put another arrow in him or anything. He just died right quick. So, and you had three bulls in that. Was it a bull? Three bulls that, in that little area. Like a, yeah. yeah, right in there. And, yeah, you know, I I still don't know if the bull that I shot was the victor. 
in that fight that I heard or not, or if it was one of the other bulls. I'm just not quite sure. But um, either way, I was pretty happy with him. He's a pretty good bull. So again, another solo hunt and um, just all kinds of circumstances why that why that hunt was so special and has again weather <laughs> the fact that i was eating crawdads and cutthroat and all the strawberries that were out it was just like a perfect timing so everything worked out i feel like we we're just scratching the surface of the the <laughs> stories and the you um, know the backcountry hunting I know, i'm not the best storyteller wisdom but that I, you have to offer see yeah but, uh, had a lot of experiences fortunately <laughs> All right. Well, hey, you had an awesome season in 2016. Yeah. So six tags. And I'm just going off of social media. I follow mm-hmm. you on Instagram and mm-hmm. and six tags and six big animals, right? Three three mule deer and three elk? It was uh, two elk, three mule deer. Okay, two yep. elk, three mule deer. Yeah. Sorry. Yep. It's interesting because you work like just from talking to you and from seeing your posts and stuff like that and hearing your stories, you're work, working harder than easily 99% of the hunters out there. Um, you're out there toughing out the weather and going higher and going farther and staying longer and uh, creating a lot of, you know, you're creating self-imposed challenges like talking about hunting Northwest Montana mm-hmm. and low, super low deer densities, but you're seeking that out and right. trying to get away from people and stuff like that. Um, why, like, what are you looking for? It's just a new, cha- a new challenge, a new adventure, I think. Um, yeah, it, it's really hard to describe. I, I've had folks ask me that before, like, you know, why do you make it harder? Or why do you want to make it harder? And you know, I've heard guys like Remy Warren talk about it and it's, it, you just get more out of it. You know, you get more of a reward, the harder it is. And so, uh, you know, I just, I, I couldn't live with myself if I backed out on a hunt because of bad weather, or, you know, I'm wet or cold or any of that. Um, don't, I don't ever want to fail that way. I want to fail because maybe I just couldn't find an animal that I was comfortable taking or, or it just didn't happen or, you know, the wind just never allowed it to happen or something like that. That's fine. I just don't want to, I just don't want to, um, ever give up on a hunt because of not being mentally tough enough to endure it. So, so yeah, I, I think I, I, I know I look for, and some people will say it's crazy. I I don't want to shoot something from the truck. I don't want to shoot something too close to the road. Um, really enjoy passing things and getting deeper and making it harder. If it's not, if it's not eight, 10 miles in, it's like, it almost feels bad. I, I've got, I've got some bucks here that dandy bucks, but they don't have a story behind it. You know, some of the early bucks, you know, they just, they either came too easy or there wasn't, you know, the, the death March type pack out to it. And they're just not memorable. Um, so there's something there's something about that suffering and then acquiring success through that suffering that makes it all the better. And I, I don't know if that comes from just experiences or what that is. Um, but I've heard it said there's there's you know a lot of guys out there that feel the same way. They're like, I don't want it to be easy. I want it to be hard. I want there to be an adventure. And that's why I've gone so far into this bow hunting thing is, um, like I, I'm a hunter, so I, and I'm an opportunist. I, I like, 
there's rifle hunts that are just tough as heck. And I am more than happy to go on those and challenge myself because of a, and maybe it's an area that, you know, it's not real glassable. So you got small windows. So just finding a buck is tough. Those are fun hunts for me. Um, archery elk, early season archery deer, those are challenges. So I, I love those challenges. I love challenging myself in new areas now. I think that's kind of why I'm branching out into these new states is uh, like Nevada. It was totally new. Um, it, it just posed this new challenge um, to go test myself and see if I could handle it, see if I could make it happen and be successful there as I can be in, say, places more well-known, you know, here in Washington. Um, so I, I get more out of it these days. It's not just the physical challenges. It's could I be successful here? Could I be successful in Northwest Montana, which I think is one of the absolute toughest places to kill a mature mule deer buck? Um, maybe there's others that are just as hard, but for me, that is one heck of a hard hunt, no matter how you cut it. You could be in some prime real estate up there that looks phenomenal and just don't have the animals there. So coming out of a hunt like that, um, that's just a massive challenge. Um, you know, deeper and steeper and all that kind of stuff, you know, you just feel better about it at the end. When you're driving home, you feel good after you're just dog tired, your body hurts and you've just beat yourself up over, over this, you know, long hunt. So, uh, killing something on the first day or the second day, it just doesn't feel very good. Uh, I really don't like telling that story. So I, I love the stories that are hard and it just so happens that if you put your your mind, it seems like for me, on this class of animal, whether it be a, a, a big mature six point bull or a you know a big old giant mule deer buck, it usually ends up taking long anyway. It usually is hard, and I'd feel bad about it if it wasn't. If it came too easy, it's just not nearly as <laughs> it's just not a story. So. Um, yeah, when I come home and talk to the girls and talk to the wife and talk to my cousin and, and tell, you know, about my trip, you know, I sure as heck hope that it was hard and tough. But I don't know why that is, but I know there's a lot of folks out there like that that um, they're the same way. They'd pass on a on a decent 170-inch buck, you know, that was standing at the trailhead to get back in there and make a hunt out of it, make an adventure out of it. All right. Well, I think we can, we can end there for the night. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, man. Yeah. This was fun. I appreciate it. Yeah. I think, I think we, uh, kind of dipped into the wee hours. I don't even know what time it is now. Um, yeah, it's about one thirty. Yeah. AM. Yeah. Thank yeah. God for that coffee. I know it. No, <laughs> I just want to say thanks so much, Ryan, for allowing me to come and kind of opening your doors and your home and your yeah. office to me and sharing a bit of your life with me. So pretty cool stuff. It's, Absolutely. It's been really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate the opportunity to be on here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Alaska DIY podcast. When my children were approaching hunting age, I knew that I wanted to teach them about the tenderness of hunting. Although I love every aspect of the hunting experience, there's always been a moment right after I kill an animal that is overwhelmingly conflicting. 
When I kneel next to an animal that died at my hands, I experience an intense tenderness that contains elation, joy, and gratitude as well as love and sorrow. In an effort to mark this tender moment, I began a very simple family tradition. Now when we take an animal's life, the killer kneels and places a hand on the dead animal's still warm body and recites these words, Thank you for your life which sustains us. It's not much, but a reminder to pause in an otherwise busy and exciting moment to show our respect and gratitude. It's also a reminder that the meat that nourishes our bodies throughout the year came at the expense of an individual animal's life. So here is my ask for you. Take a child or a loved one into the woods. Teach them love and respect for all things. Teach them the skills necessary to hunt with humility and to be deadly so that animals do not suffer at their hands. Most importantly, teach them to be grateful for wild places and wild creatures.